Welcome to another episode of Sustainable Goat. I'm Steve Kastenham, and I interview the greatest of all time in sustainability from the past, present, and into the future. In this episode, I talk with Tommy Hoffman, founder of CampWorks. Tommy and I met a few years ago, and he was working on this idea, and it was an idea of building a better camper so that people could enjoy the outdoors, but to do it in a more sustainable way. Today, CampWorks makes the most badass teardrop camper on the market. It's fully electric and it doesn't look like anything else out there. Tommy is truly an incredible human and we talk about so many different topics from design to architecture, entrepreneurship, and what sustainability actually means. And I hope you find it super valuable. So let's start the conversation with Tommy. First of all, thanks for just being a part part of the podcast. Like, I'm just pumped to have this conversation. I've been a fan of what you've been working on for a long time. It's been really cool to see the product develop from like an idea and kind of more or less a, a capstone project into an actual business. But I I want to know more from you. Just what what is your background as like a human being? Where where does your thought and mindset come from? What was your childhood like? in the sense of how, how did you see the world and how did that worldview develop? That is such an amazing question. All right, we're starting off with a heavy hitter here. That's um, right. <laughs> dude, I love it. Well, I look at from, so from a design standpoint and you look in kind of in that context of how we backtrack from what, how I build things here, the earliest memory like I always, I always have is, and this probably because there's a picture of this moment more than an actual active like memory in my brain. But my dad was remodeling our bathroom, our hallway bathroom, the kids bathroom, as we called it. And I would sit in a little like on a stool. We had this like foot top, like it was a step stool to get up to the sink to brush your teeth. And it was like it could fold, though. It like was two little steps or you could fold it and it would become like a, a place to sit with a backrest. So it was just like on this hinge. And so it was like how you brush your teeth, but it was also a, a seat. And I don't know exactly why that was the combination they came up with, but I would pull it out of the bathroom as my dad was remodeling. And I would sit in this little chair and just watch him. I would literally just watch him as he remodeled the bathroom. There's a lot of familial things of how you ever become what you are. If you're good at building something, because you probably took an interest at it in a young age, right? Like I played with Legos and Connects as a kid and just built stuff. And, and it was always like the fun piece of never building off of like a, off of a drawing, but just like, I'm going to make a this, whatever it is. And I always would do like houses out of the Legos. So there's like the, the playful side of it, but uh, it was just like watching it happen. I think it was just an interest in, and at that time you see your parents doing something, you're like, this is like the most amazing construction project ever, right? Is this how, this is what the inside of a wall looks like. And as a kid, you're just amazed by it without having any real understanding of it. So that like start of being a designer or start of seeing the world through like what is construction, what is building, it, it really, it's a funny thing, but I, I think it started as a really young kid and um, always asking the question of, is that a working guy or a building guy? I don't know what the difference <laughs> is still to this day. So you started your fascination with building from that age, but when did you start to translate into this idea that maybe you could build things for life? I mean, you go through school and you, you kind of go, you know, doctor, lawyer, you know, your traditional jobs and, you know, what you're doing now is not very traditional. It's traditional in the sense that, you know, you're accomplishing a task and building a product, but the way of going about it and the problem that you're solving is not traditional. So like how, how did that develop in, in your life? Was it, was it school? Was it an experience outside of school? It's a moment. I think the piece is that's a moment that's really hard to put a finger on of like, oh, when did that happen? Or when did it translate? Or how did it even? Because it's this really 
unique story of I think as a kid having that background of just really being interested in seeing it that starts off to be like something that's in the back of your head of okay well these are interests of mine and I think those will always play out in us if we have whatever it is is young early childhood development I think you end up kind of being that in, in the real world so you can look at that but for me the moment sitting in high school I would leave my economics class because I was like, ah, it's just graphs and, and this, and it's, it's easy. Like that, I don't have to be here to learn about economics. I'll just take the test when it shows up. And I would go to my ceramics, the art room, and I would just like go in and build stuff in, in the ceramics room. And so there was like a passion for just making stuff. And I always kind of had that. But when it, when it came to high school, it was like all of these other things that you would learn about, but then you just be like, okay, well, I want to put my hands on something and actually work through it. Right. And I'm not ignoring, I wasn't ignoring necessarily econ. It was like, having an understanding of economics or having an understanding of, of uh, you know, whether it be your history classes or your art, your art classes is like, how do you bring all of it together? Right. And so you're sitting there and I remember I would make like these little sculptural pots and different things and unique way where I look at today, what we're doing with camp works and the, and the NS1 is like this hand sculpted body that I made in my dad's backyard is kind of this weird thing of it's like, it was sculptural. It's like, what detail, how does it come out? And I think of my favorite class in high school being art, art. And I was like, well, what's next? And it was this really kind of unconscious process of like, well, I like art. So I guess I'll do architecture in school. Like, I'm not going to be an art major. That seems like superfluous or frilly or like, yeah, I like art. It's, it's something I really like, it, I enjoy it, but I didn't, that's where I come from. I didn't ignore all these other things. And my other classes weren't things that I would just like, ah, I don't care about this class. I'm going to go do something else. It was like a I understand those. So there's got to be a link. And I don't think I really understood what architecture was. Like, I don't, I didn't have like a favorite architect in high school. I wasn't like crazy enamored with, with architecture. Exactly. It just that checked out. And it was like, where are you going to school? And I'm like, I'm going to CU Boulder. Cause I went to Burlington elementary and sunset and Niawat and then <laughs> CU Boulder. It was right. Like it was in the exact same town. So I think it was just a lot of these unconscious moments of well, I like this and I enjoy this. And so this is just the like logical kind of next step, I suppose. And um, that link between it, though, is really interesting, man. As I'm sitting here, I'm talking about, it, I think that's something to really explore further is like, how do you build something that is both that, that structure and that organization of space and system, but also something that's artful and playful. And um, maybe that's where architecture actually comes in is that combination between the two. I mean, what was the interest in architecture? I mean, I know it was that, you know, it could work as, you know, a career. It kind of integrated that art. But I mean, did you, would you drive by buildings, for example, if you went down to Denver or something and you were like, wow, look at that building? Or like, did you, did you get inspiration from the world around you um, and just kind of recognize that it's, that it was something that was beautiful and that it was designed? Or was it just something that you thought would be a career path that you thought you would have fit well into. And I think that I wanted to get into that because I think that's an important thing to realize is like, is it something that you saw joy in and an excitement or something that you just saw that you could do? Yeah. You have to see beauty in anything you're pursuing in life. And I, I always joke that 17 year old Tommy would really benefit from understanding how I see the world now. And it's like, it would have set up for a lot more, kind of a lot more success at a lot earlier age. But, you know, I think we're pretty unaware sometimes of if we're following what's best and like what's in our heart. I think there's a lot of unconsciousness to that process, right? Like, I don't think that you can be super aware of whether or not you're following 
things you're passionate about or things that you care about. I think you just, you just kind of are. But I think if you respect that you care about the things you care about and you're going to try your best every day, then I think you end up in those spots. So I, at, at that moment, man, I wish I would have spent a bit more time being like mindful and conscientious about it, what I enjoy and what I appreciate about the things around me. But I, like there's moments I could, I could say to a specific moments is when they were building the new um, soccer stadium down in uh, Commerce City here in Colorado for the Rapids. We're driving back from a soccer game one day and my dad's like, well, let's go stop and see the stadium. And that construction project, which was like a merger of like my my sports life and and like and building and construction and all these different things. And we like went and drove on the property and we probably weren't supposed to. And we drove on <laughs> and we like looked at them putting up walls and putting up or like the structural beams and everything and like kind of saw the initial phase of this is going to be a soccer stadium. And um, so I think there's there's an appreciation for that. And I, by my sophomore year of college, I remember I, I was dating a girl at the time where we would just walk through Boulder and look at the houses. So there's definitely like an appreciation for because you see in like in an old house, the thing that I love so much about like old craftsmanship and like kind of a certain era of house. And I, it's not like an, I don't have a specific favorite time or era of it, but I always just love to see those moments show up in a house or in anything that's built. You can see something something human about it right whether it be like the little detail that's like somebody had to put that up in there or like I always look at like the rafters whether or not I, I should know the name of these my architecture <laughs> schooling is really failing me here but uh you know like just those little moments in a, in a house or something that's beautiful that like it took some human touch and and how do they maintain it and what's the property what's the paint color like what's I mean yeah you could appreciate all of it and it's like what decisions that making and that's the fun piece about architecture probably at the end of the day versus like an art gallery, which I, I can appreciate walking through an art gallery and seeing what the artist is doing there. But architecture realistically ends up being so user. Like you walk past somebody's house, that's them. Not always, but that's their favorite color. That's their like favorite style. That's, you can see how well they're maintaining their yard, how well they're maintaining their, their whatever it is. I mean, think about somebody plants like a perfectly green grass yard. What that says versus somebody who has like, maybe uh, like a community garden or like, Hey, here's like, here's some fruit trees. Here's something like grab, grab this as you walk by. I have a basket out in front of my yard. Cause I'm using my yard for a different purpose. Right. Like, or it's a flower garden and it's this beautiful thing. And there's a fragrance when you walk by and there's bees and different things going around. And, and it's like each person's uniqueness really comes out in their space. And so like, I don't know who ends up being the artist in these moments, right? The person who initially designed the house has some say, the person who built the house has some say, or the or the, the building in general. I don't mean to say exclusively the house, but I think that it's a it's a beautiful like combination of so many little factors and facets of life that I don't you know when you start to dig into why and how it looks that way, you you get kind of a good idea of a lot of different people and perspective on the world at that time and their life and all these different fun things. So when you were in architecture school. Were you thinking, did you get any internships, anything that was like, I'm going to try and explore this architecture world more, or did you shift during that process? Because, you know, I think college is an opportunity for people to either dive into what they, what they want to do and explore more of what that potential career will look like. And then others will just, you know, go through the motions and do it. What was your experience like in terms of going through college and, and, and up until when you graduated, what was that like? In, in college, my financial situation as a kid and growing up, I was the first, I was the first in my family to go to a four-year university. 
And I remember being asked like, why are you going? And I was like, well, cause I, like, I have to, I mean, I, I gotta, somebody's gotta go, right? Like I should do this. I hear a lot of people, all my friends, everybody's, everybody's going. I think there's like this weird thing about peer pressure that it's like, no, you want to put yourself in a peer group that you respect. So I love and respect these people. And I see what they're doing. Like, I want to go do that too. And so in my family background, it was a tough, I think it was a tough situation to go and put myself in to go to see you in the first place was like a, a bit of a stretch for us and a bit of a thing that like I had to I had to own it and I think everybody lives this right now in our world like the student debt crisis is such like a, a significant burden for so many people to just go chase what they what they want to do but um, I took loans and I, I worked through it right so the ability to say hey I want to work in this space and I'm going to go work there for free is such an like it's a privilege. I hope everybody really like understands how important it is to take advantage of that opportunity if you can to say, I'm going to go learn something here and just say, I don't want any money. I want to learn. So don't pay me because I think there's a value exchange that gets really off. The second you get paid for something, you're not there to learn. You're getting paid for the value you provided. When in reality, an internship should be about the value that you are getting in receiving because you're being mindful of your situation, your awareness of like, what there is to learn in that place. So I didn't get to do an internship, but I still approached it pretty similarly. So my summers, I would frame houses. So my freshman between college, between high school and college, I framed houses. And then my sophomore, freshman to sophomore summer, I also framed houses. So kind of like, uh, and by framed houses, I remember like day one, he let me build a dumpster to throw garbage <laughs> into. <laughs> and so, so I mean, like, you know, it took a full for, I think by my end of my first summer framing houses, I, they, my boss Dudley let me build one wall <laughs> and I, and I, and I totally messed it up, man. I totally messed it up. He's like, here, build this wall. I'm like, yes, finally. And I put a window at the wrong height. I think it was supposed to be like measured from the bottom 24 inches up or whatever. And I thought it was supposed to be like a high window. And so I don't know. I, I, I messed it up. And so it was so funny after a whole summer of framing, I'm like, you know, I say I was building houses. I think in reality, I was moving brick and I was cleaning up the site. And I, I digress, man. It was a fun, it was a fun time. It was a lot of hard work. I'd come back. I'd want to go golf afterwards and I'd just fall asleep kind of situation. It was like, there's nothing mm -hmm. to do all summer, just working your, working your butt off. But it was a really cool spot to see how things got put together and you'd build one house and then you'd move on as a, as a group, your team would move on. And then like the next group would come behind you. So I, I was watching that constantly. And I think if you're observant in this world, that's the piece of like, I don't think every path is right for people, but make the most out of whatever your journey is. Like really mm -hmm. like take some time to understand what you are able to learn in a day. And I think it's, it sounds like, what did you learn today at school? Your parents would ask as a kid, but like mm -hmm. have that, have that mindset in life. It goes a really long way to be like, well, I found this moment today that taught me something something valuable so I was framing houses and then I, I was like coaching soccer it was my other job through it so I was coaching which plays a whole different role in, mm -hmm. in what we're doing today yeah and when and you started designing some stuff while you were in college um I remember we we talked about geodome that you designed and then obviously you designed the prototype for for camp works in the ns1 talk me through some of those design concepts that you made I mean obviously you had to draw on some of that experience of building and watching building but also a lot of learning and a lot of probably trial and error to, to get those done so like what was what were what was that process like when you actually started building something that you saw in your mind and you were like i'm gonna go build this 
this, yeah, taking something from your brain in, and putting in the real world. So there's so much to it. And I think it's a, like a good approach to go from like this timeline standpoint. So from my framing houses, I, I developed enough knowledge of like actually how to build things. And as a kid, I was handy or like would help my dad with a project, getting a little bit more handy by my, my sophomore year between sophomore and junior year, rather than framing houses. Um, my, my, my journey was like, I'm going to live in a van. I was getting so stressed out from school and, and not like, not the hard work of school, not the studying of school, but like the things that always got to me about, about like the education system is you're sitting there like trying to expand knowledge as a whole, but you're getting tested on like a, a single data point. And I think that's like, I think a lot of people probably really struggle with that is like, are we trying to learn more? Because if I'm learning more and I like we could have a conversation person to person about like the the depth of knowledge that I'm gaining or the way I'm developing as a human being. And it's not like this little schooling. So I remember being like really stressed out the moment I always think of of like was we were learning about Versailles and the palace out there and the beautiful gardens. And we were learning like what garden was which and what people owned the property and what day it was built. And it was like a landscape architecture class. And I remember being like, wait, time out. Why does it matter at all? It's beautiful, good, it's great. Look at the design or the grid lines they use. Like you can understand maybe how they were laying out spaces or how they were creating like these moments for people to walk through this garden. But at the end of the day, like the story of Versailles is when the world was as a whole starving and in poverty and people had things and other people had nothing we were in this time and place in this world where like famine's ripping across and disease is ripping across like the global community and, I, and no one knows that probably at that time right it's pretty hard to say but this guy just wants to watch the sunrise the, the whatever it was king louis or i don't even remember man whoever that dude is wants to watch the sun rise over his garden every day and it's like that's not beautiful architecture that's like built by slaves here's like the story of versailles isn't when it was built or look at the design of it or what's the garden name it's like really this human story about putting wealth into a spot a specific place in our world when the rest of the world had nothing architecture was this beautiful palace and the rest of the world there's not even there's not even a memory of it like we don't even know so i was really stressed out because there's just so many moments where we're learning about that and i'm like we should be doing something about like that type of injustice, or we should be dealing with these larger problems. Or we learn about, you know, we learn about sustainability. We look at the world today and climate crisis and everything. And I mean, like, it, it, it's a moment for you to really see what the world is. And I think college is that mm -hmm. moment really to like learn what you want to learn and see, you know, get the information that you need to know to develop what you feel and how you're, how you're going to go and act in this world. But I was just like, I don't know how we solve anything. Um, mm -hmm. As a, as a college student, I don't know how we solve anything. And I, I was, I was like pretty beat and I was pretty done with it to be totally transparent as like, I was going to go and live in a van and traveling around. So one of my best friends at the time, he and I planned this trip. We were going to go all over the country and we were going to travel around and have just an awesome time. Right. And, um, I remember traveling in this van being like, well, this will be awesome. Go see all these amazing places to have this amazing, uh, amazing time. And it was, uh, it, it was, it was just such a, a moment of like trying to run away from all of the 
things we are learning about that you can't solve, like these huge large scale problems that you're learning about in college. And just like, I'm going to move into a van. I'm going to live my life that way and just go have fun with friends. Like just go enjoy the world around us. And, and it was this funny thing of like, <laughs> built out this van and I'm like, we're traveling around. I think for the first month I had this, I, one of my friends with me, was with me and I'm like, wait, time out. We need a, now I'm an overlanding guru, right? A designer and a camp works as this <laughs> off-road camper. And I'm like, we really need a rooftop tent and we need a crazy pull-out kitchen and all sorts of amazing things. So when we showed up, like I remember we were, we showed up to San Diego, like kind of by the beachfront. And if we had shown up with the coolest van ever and like pulled out a bar and been like making drinks and having a great time, we had a rooftop tent, we would have had an amazing time. But instead it was like two guys traveling around the country and we get to another cool campsite, we go hiking. And then it's like, all right, dude. Well, I guess we're both going to try and sleep in this van, like stay on your side of the bed. Like it was just like, a. this doesn't work. This isn't fun for anybody. And so it was like, I think it was probably like three weeks in. He was like, screw it. I'm done with this trip. Like I'm going to go back. <laughs> and so it's this like story of like space, just not working for life though. You look at like mm-hmm. all the money I could throw together and he could throw together and all the effort we were building. We built a van. It's like, well, that was not good enough, right? And so you look at like the way people want to live being so imposed with like, I don't even know how to describe it, like with with con- like constraints that shouldn't exist, right? Like that should have been a thing that we could do in this world, right? We want to have like spaces that are built around experiences we all want to have. That would mm-hmm. be good architecture. So that van, I remember building it and I, I went, and I kept going for the rest of the summer and I, I kept like looking at what I wanted to do. And I remember sitting in Montana and I, at this point, I'm just completely like, it's just myself. I'm on this property, met up with another group of friends and I'm sitting and living out of this thing in, um, in, in Montana and like, wait, there's gotta be a way to do this better because like after this whole trip, it's like, it didn't work. It wasn't good for friends. It wasn't good for like, it wasn't good to live out of. It really wasn't what you want your life to be. I remember there's just so many moments like that. Like I want to just be in this place and not have this whole context of living out of a van. I remember showing up in Seattle as a moment of like, wait, I'm living out of my van and I'm seeing homelessness all over the place, but I'm like, am I homeless right now? Or am I not homeless Mm. right now? Like, am what what am I in this context I don't have a place to go back to like you meet somebody and you're like oh hey by the way let's go hang out here you're like not a part of that place you don't show up in Seattle living out of your van as a part of the Seattle community you're definitely like an outlier and or you're on the outsides of it so it's funny like this idea of the first thing I probably ever built was this van and it was like this idea of just like escaping from all these crazy constraints that life starts like or that architecture was showing. And then you go and experience and you see homelessness and you see a place really failing to create the experience you want. And Mm -hmm. uh, so you go back and it's like, well, how can we make that more communal? I think when you try and solve problems for either other people or for yourself, you have to experience that problem to truly know how to solve it. Um, And I think had you just built something without taking a van, and experiencing those things, I highly doubt that your product would be quite the same as it is now. Because you you can put yourself in those moments of going, I didn't like the way that this was functioning. I wish that I had this. I wish that I had that. And I think it's it's a important part of the narrative. Um, because you, I think, and even, even van life right now is really, really popular for people. And they're doing huge build outs and doing a bunch of stuff with it. 
but it isn't necessarily what you see in the pictures or what you see in, in, in the videos. And I think that that's a very important thing to kind of dive into a little bit is like expectation versus reality. I mean, everybody makes fun of it on Instagram. They're like expectation versus reality, but like it's, it's totally a thing though. And so how did that feel for you? You were expecting really like a life-changing trip of I'm going to get out of this, all these problems that I'm facing, these like crisis, if you will, of your mindset of what am I doing with my life? Did it actually solve the problem? Man, it gave a lot of ammunition, I think, to use as I designed the next thing. So you, you, you asked what was like the initial project was the first thing that I was like, I'm going to design this was this van. And I remember when, so when I was sitting there, I was like, actually the biggest thing that's failing right now is the space itself. I think that the biggest thing failing is that this space isn't built for it. And you look at like, all right, maybe, maybe a crazy idea, right? But you're with one of your best friends. You want to go travel around and you want to go have this incredible trip. And it's like, no, we have a lot of driving to do. We have a lot of places to see. I mean this pretty honestly. I think that it can't be understated how much of a, of a reality the space plays in the life you want to live and why why it needs to be really well thought out right so i make that joke but there's like if you are traveling and the things you need in that spot right there's moments i could tell you exactly how that trip that experience that idea of like all these large problems i'm just going to run away and build this thing that i see in my head and then okay the space failed right? My craftsmanship wasn't very good. The design wasn't very good. The thing wasn't built very well. Um, it was lacking a lot of function and utility. And you look at today and like in the NS1, the, the product we build today has all of these things. I think people probably generally, if you look at our product and you look at our price point, people say it's luxury, right? And the, the biggest thing that I struggle with about the word luxury is that when you look at an NS1, which is this little teardrop style camper, fully electric build. Um, it has heater and water heater and an electric stovetop and has so much battery. You could plug in like a coffee pot in the morning or a blender to make some drinks at night, or you could run a projector screen off the side. We can add like this beautiful cabinetry inside and all these different things. It's really nice. But when I look at it, the thing I always feel really strongly is, if it was the only thing you had as a human being, what, what part of it is luxury or what part of this little tiny camper that we build at CampWorks, what part of it is luxury or like what part of it isn't human necessity? If you said to somebody, here's a camper for you, but actually those cabinets are too nice. They're gonna last you too long and they're built with just too much heart and soul. You deserve less heart and soul. You deserve less quality. You, you actually aren't worth those things mm. as an individual, right? And so you're sitting there. And I think that's why that space really failed is because like, I think it's funny to think that me and a, my best friend are going to go travel around in a van and it's going to be like an amazing time. I think they're honestly, we probably thought we were both going to meet our future wives on that trip. And I think probably people <laughs> saw it of like, wait, time out. Two guys are traveling around in a van. What the hell is that about? And I think- <laughs> The funny piece is it was idealistic to think that we could just build a space that was so good that like, oh, we could, this is, this is the journey we're going to go have. Mm -hmm. But like, whatever you want your life to be, shouldn't there be an object in this world that can allow for that to happen? Like, it's just, it's this really weird piece of like, 
why not? Tell me what's the problem about it. Well, so it needs two bedrooms and it needs a better kitchen, needs this and that. So that first project was a real failure because it didn't, it didn't work. It just really did not work. When it was for one person, it still didn't work. The humidity was a huge problem. There was problems with insulation. And, and I, I mean, it was, it was, this whole idea was that it would have like a flexible table and an interior workspace totally didn't right like by the time it went down to like bed height like we had a, a table that was supposed to be adjustable height it broke and so it got stilted up on top of like a milk carton box and it was like it just didn't work and so if you looked at like what that quality of that design was it was a neat idea but it didn't work and so I remember I was not coming back to school. Personally, I was like, I was done with school because I didn't know what, what I, what was I going to learn? How else the world was broken or what other problem there was? Like, I didn't feel like we were learning any solutions. And so this trip, I ended up being like, okay, actually, they're going to keep teaching me problems. It's my job to start learning what a solution might look like. Like, that's, mm. that's on me to start figuring that out. Not regurgitate information to them. So I came back my junior year. I thought we were, we were learning about like infrastructure and systems, like, like civil engineering types of things. And, and I remember it was like, there's lead certifications, which is this whole sustainability piece, right? I remember we were learning all about it. And I was like, ah, you know what? If you're going to teach me about this way to be sustainable, that means everybody already knows this. <laughs> I'm an undergraduate. <laughs> like, so it's laughable now to think that I was like, haha, never mind. But I just went out and I, I remember finding like, living building project which is like this whole mm -hmm. other set of standards right and that like we weren't teaching they weren't teaching because it was definitely like less popular and less like certifiable than leads but there's a real problem like leads fun fact on leads if you put more toilets in your building your building is more efficient based on lead standards because yes. it's like the number of high efficiency toilets so there are people right now that to get better lead certification on their buildings, which this is broken. And I think people who know leads also know this is broken. This isn't like a, this isn't like leads is broken and the people who create it and the mm -hmm. people who care about it and endorse it are wrong. It's that like, it's a manipulated system so that somebody can say, no, this building is lead certified. They will actually take, because there's a ticker, like it gets counted for this, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a high efficiency toilet, it's worth like a point. So the more points you can get, so they'll build bathrooms. And this happens at CU. They'll build bathrooms. If you walk into like the C4C on CU's campus, like the community center, the the whatever, there's a there's a bathroom on like each floor that has like 20 different stalls, as if everybody in the building was going to the bathroom at the same time, right? It was it's just horrible design. Like it's mm -hmm. completely a waste of of porcelain to build the toilet and water to full foam all whatever. It's just like total inefficiency, but it gets them a better rating. So yeah. And the concept that even if you have bike racks, whether they're filled bike racks or not, you get more points. If everybody rode their bike, then it would be more sustainable that way. And so obviously it was built into the system, but then there's what I'm fascinated with is the ideation of what an idea is. And then the function of what society actually does with that. What, what do people do in that space? How do people utilize the space? And that's one thing I've always been fascinated with how you look at design is you look at how will someone actually function in the space, not just what is the most ideal on a piece of paper, because you may go, oh, this is the best design, but then you get in it and you're like, mm -mm, no, this isn't right. And it's because you're living it. You have to live in this, those spaces. And so 
my senior year, we, we had the program kind of was shifting from an architecture focus to this. It was, the pro, it was the program of environmental design, right? So it was like, it wasn't architecture ever really, but they were like, they were just splitting from the school of Denver, like architecture school in Denver. And they were just trying to become their own thing. So by my senior year, it was like, I think they had started to figure out what the program itself wanted to be. And it's an amazing place because they, they basically started allowing for, um, like individual studies, like design studies and design thinking. So I ended up my fourth year going into design thinking, not landscape architecture, proper architecture, or like um, urban planning, right? Like that wasn't, that wasn't for me. And give a, give a brief intro on what design thinking is for people who don't know what design thinking is. You know, there, there is, it's in a way to approach solving of problems. That's, I think that's the best way I could say it. It is, it is the study of what what it means to think, gosh, I'm, I'm going to use the definition as what it is, like design thinking is design thinking. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's like, so the scientific process, right? The scientific method, as we've all, you know, we did in middle school or whatever, right? Uh, you look at like, there's hypothesis and testing and right, like whatever it is that goes, the scientific method. Well, there's also, there's a lot of creative processes. There's a lot of ways to think through a problem and find a solution. So what design thinking is really trying to do is say that the ideas of what like help us design a building or a space, they can be used to solve basically any any type of problem. So like this creative process that is architecture, hey, I have a client, you want a building, how many bedrooms? Okay, that, do you want a big kitchen open concept? Do you want this or that, right? Like you're starting to like identify things. Are you a big, are you a big chef or are you more like, like I love movies and like, so the things that an architect would kind of walk you through or how much stuff do you own? Like, what's your pay, favorite piece of furniture? What's your favorite fabric, right? I could show you all these samples and all these materials. This idea is basically to evoke a lot of emotion from the person that you're talking to, to find out what the problems in their life are so that the structure that you build as an architect can kind of answer them. And so design thinking is that same idea, but trying to apply it to basically anything that life has. So yeah. um, how do you how do you bring that idea into it? And there's a lot of things about like being more collaborative in how we how we do it and, and how do we prototype? Prototyping. Mm -hmm. We basically learned in design thinking how to prototype. We learned how to um, good positive feedback from a community that's like, what do you want to do? And how do you create like these really amazing projects based on what people are actually like thinking. And so how do you get that? And I think one of my favorite examples of, of design thinking, um, was a story that, um, I, f I forget which airport it was, but essentially an airport had an issue with their chairs being too comfortable. So people would hang out there all day long and, and people wouldn't get to sit at all where they wanted. People would just own the seat for like four hours at a time. And so part of that problem was to design a chair that looked really comfortable, that was comfortable, but after about an hour, it would be uncomfortable and people would want to get up and move. And it solved the problem of circulation. And so people started actually moving in the space. Um, and that's, that's, I mean, one of my favorite examples of it, just because it's, you wouldn't think about that that was intentional. Like people just go, oh, well, you know, those chairs are great, but they, they get uncomfortable about an hour they'd think it was bad design, but in fact it was good design because it achieved the goal of who was putting it there. And that was the airport to have people rotate and move around. Um, yeah, really fascinating. Now the way I utilize what I learned there, in my life, the way it works is just understanding that 
the way you frame the problem ends up usually being part of the solution, right? So it's like, we have too comfortable of chairs. If I say that's a problem that our chairs are too comfortable, well, you're already halfway there, right? Like people are sitting so long that no one's moving. It's because our chairs are too comfortable. As soon as you figured out that the chair is too comfortable, okay, there's your solution. Make it less comfortable. And so it's it's an interesting way. And, and so basically, and it's it's really an industrial design. Like it was an industrial design course. It was a kind of an architecture course, but I had some classmates that were doing amazing stuff. And like project my senior year was to build a camper, right? Like I had done it to build a, a van. And what I wanted to do is build like a camper for, for me, it was like the idea was something mobile. It wasn't so, it was never meant to really be a camper. It was like communicated as a camper because I don't want to fight with all the verb, right? Like, like the word that is the verbiage. Mm-hmm. Like I don't want to fight with, oh, it's a tiny, tiny house or a micro house or it's a this or a that. I was just like, ah, it's a camper, right? Because people mm-hmm. know what that is. And did you make that decision because because of the van experience? You're like, look, I, I want a separate unit that isn't the same unit that I use to get from point A to point B. A van, a van, the difference between a van and a trailer at the end of the day, you can't leave one behind ever. So mm-hmm. it's never your home. It's always your vehicle, right? It might be your home also, but it is your vehicle. And so um, a trailer, it detaches. It, it's a separate location. I think when we look at what architecture or homes are, it's like we, we don't want something that's like necess- we want that permanence. I think humans want that permanence, right? Like living out of van, that experience I had really felt pretty homeless, like felt pretty unwelcome in a lot of places, felt pretty like discouraged about where I was going to sleep and stay. Whereas this other, like a trailer, the idea was, and the whole project was supposed to be a book describing like how this camper actually worked as like a tool for designing and building new I didn't take the landscape architecture major. I didn't do the architecture major and I didn't do the the civil planning. So I was like, how could a little camper that's just design thinking, how could it solve all of these problems? So how would it interweave into that fabric? Right. And it was like, the idea is to say and present like different ideas is like all the tools are out there for us to solve all the problems in the world. I just heard Greta Thunberg had a little speech and it was probably years ago, but she said like, and, and we all know this, every tool we need to solve every problem that's in our world today. It exists. Like we have the tools. Every, we can mm-hmm. say that the generations before us screwed us over and they gave us huge problems, but they also gave us every tool. So, you know, let's let's put them together. And I was saying that this camper, it's like, guess what? You need a spare bedroom? Put a camper on the side yard. Now you have another bedroom. You mm-hmm. want to go and get outdoors more? Well, it's cool. Take it to a campground. Go do that. Like you want to, I always had this idea that the hill in Boulder is this like kind of residential neighborhood right by the campus and it's really expensive to rent if you're a college student and like the house the home values are like million dollar house is really really expensive and I was like I grew up 10 minutes away and I could never have ever considered living on the hill which is like people from California and Texas and all over the place would move into Boulder and they'd live right next to it and I'm like wait this is like my this is my hometown like I just want to go to my school and get like closer to the mountains so I can go hike and everything and it's like this big party location and I'm like, I'd live there so that I was five seconds away from a trail and you're living there mm-hmm. so that you can be close to the party on the weekend. So the idea was like these little units, they're mobile so you can move them from place to place, but they don't have to, like, they just don't have to, right? It's the idea of a tiny home is imagine parking instead of all these parking spots on this, like in this neighborhood, replace them with people who live there, 
right? Like, what's the problem? You're allowing somebody to park their car out there, but it's them that's the problem, right? Like, they can't stay out there. So I was like, the idea was like this little thing, wherever a car can go, it can go. If you are comfortable with a car being in the parking spot in front of your house, then now it's a place for a person to live. And now you have another neighbor, right? Like this whole idea of like, I don't want people around. Like we, we try and run away, but it's like society doesn't support each other enough. So I, I, it was this idea that like this little camper could pop into these locations all over the place, whatever the setting was, we could redevelop parking garages and have all of these little campers show up in the parking garage. Now this parking garage, it's wasted space, becomes like a home for a ton of people, right? So the idea was it could solve homelessness and it could really create like a better future because you're creating like a, a thing that holds everything a person needs. It holds their water, it holds their cooking, mm-hmm. holds their food, it holds, it gives them warmth and provides them a place for their stuff. Um, and so that was my college project was this little teardrop camper. It went really, really well. The fact that it was a, it was a little course, it was like a little course to build an entire camper. It went really, really well. Um, like the university continued to use it as an advertisement for the school for like, I think they probably still run the ad. It was like, here's what you can build, come to see you kind of deal. And it was like, it was a really, really special thing. And I, I, mm-hmm. I'm, it's like a huge honor still to have them, I don't know, to have them use that. And it's like, it was a special, it was a special project though. And I think it was something that like all my, you look at like all of the, my classmates and what they created that year too. You know, it's like that school taught us so much where it was so many different people trying to solve these problems and show this beautiful thing that we're, that we're all working toward, right? Like that's the, the amazing thing is like anybody saying anything is saying the same thing. I think I said that to you, Steve, one time before, mm-hmm. but it's like, everybody's working on the same thing. And it was just like, it was really cool that it caught so many people's attention and like kind of inspired inspired people right? I think it really did it was like this really cool project for you to see out of like it was it was really it was really kind of nice I think of like the DIY camper build world it's as good as you can do a DIY camper like do it yourself in your backyard in your garage I mean it was really a really like cool thing to have created and and, and such an honor to have a teacher who Jeremy Ely who like supported doing it and taught us and educated us well so we could see it and and, and just an amazing program so so when did you decide that you wanted to make this into into a business or or even could make it into a business? Like, was was there a time where you just kind of went, I'm just going to go for this? Or or was it kind of more of a step-by-step and you kind of ended up going into it? Like, how did, how did that process unfold? Um, because I think a lot of times when you have a really good idea and you have a concept and you even know how you want to do it, it's now getting to that next step that I think a lot of people have problems with or, or at least are faced with a lot of challenges. How did that go for you in taking this DIY camper, if you will, and now you're, you're really trying to make something that's on another level for the market to actually purchase? Short answer, I, right after college, there were so many people that were so interested in it and it like had gotten such a great response from everybody that it was like, I want to do this right away. So I tried right then to create a business and, and like make this camper and just really like simply detach from what that is, like starting a business and having a good idea, not the same, not the same. I was camping and I was skiing and I wasn't, I was not working that hard. I was enjoying post-school life and like really, truly, and very honestly, I spent six months just having fun saying, oh, I'm starting a business. Look at this cool thing I did. Like totally detached, totally detached from what that meant. 
Um, so started a business and it failed, it failed. And I was like, I can't do this. Like, Hey, I realized like, I want to buy a ski pass next year. I should probably start getting some money and start working. Uh, so it was like, that was, that was like kind of the immediate piece is like, all right, tried, totally failed. Like didn't know what it was doing. And, and I mean, came up with business cards and branding and website and communicated the vision, came up with pricing structure, but like didn't file for like, didn't do articles for incorporation or like an operating <laughs> agreement, like super simple, like do this step one, to, like Google search, how to start a business. There's 10 steps, do those 10 steps. And then you'll actually maybe consider like, then maybe you're starting, right? Like, but if you don't do those 10 steps, you're really actually not starting a business. You're just like working on a hobby. I also think it's a bit of a, a bit of a, almost a skin in the game concept. When you go through those 10 steps, like you have to spend real dollars to register a business. It's official. If that business makes money, you're paying taxes. Like it's almost, you take this, it's a, almost a responsibility next step where you go, oh, okay, I, I, I guess I'll start really making something now. Whereas I think there's a freedom when you don't have that to be like, well, well if, it, if it happens, it happens. I'm doing this. This is cool. And it can just kind of flow. I think that that's, that's a really important thing for people who are listening. Um, take those 10 steps. Do that. Um, because if you're committed on an idea and you really want to do it, take those steps to do it right. Because it's only going to make a massive headache of problems later to figure it out if you start operating it more as like a bigger than hobby but didn't actually set up the business structure it will be a nightmare oh you're gonna run into so many problems just uh, so man there's that's a whole other side of it that i think like really doesn't get talked about as much as it should but like in the sustainability world right like in this world of i am focused on creating a better tomorrow right like there's so many people especially I think our age, our generation here, like, you know, 20s, 30s, whatever our millennial generation, whatever it is, right? I think in the millennial world, there is so much desire to go do something that is incredibly beneficial to your community, to your people, to the, to, to like the world as a whole. But there's also like this weird, there's this weird fear and I had it too. I also legitimately am like, I am afraid of being a business. I am afraid of it sometimes because I think that you look at so much and it is corporate responsibility. Number one thing that we should really understand needs to like, we need corporations, large businesses, people who are in this world. We need to understand the value and the impact you can have with your decisions on that scale. Like the individual can do a lot of things and yeah, they buy your product or they don't, but like it is so easy to launch a marketing campaign that makes it look like Coca-Cola is good for the planet. And the reality is a sugar-filled drink is never, ever, ever, distributed all over the world mm -hmm. is never good for the world, ever. It will never be. Coca-Cola, if you're listening, shut down your shop. Start distributing water to places that need water. Stop, stop loading it full of sugar. There you go. You wanna solve some problems in the world? Coca-Cola just decides to do something good, right? It's, it is kind of that easy sometimes, but mm -hmm. I think we, as our generation see so much problems with large corporations and large businesses and large stakeholders and shareholders that we don't even want to like contribute to that world at all. Like there's this real, like, no, we're going to solve it by not doing it. I'm like, we're going to fight against corporations. We're going to fight against like the way they work. You're going to lose. You're going to mm -hmm. lose. And somebody's going to sell out and go work for that company and do a great job. It, it, like, 
we got to just get a little bit more entrepreneurial in our, in our thought process. And if you have a brilliant idea or a way to save the world or a way to help, like go start a business. Don't be afraid of the business world. It teaches you lessons of how to offer and provide value. It teaches you lessons on how to like put yourself in a position of risk. Cause if you're not going to lose anything, you're not going to gain anything. That's just like simple, mm-hmm. simple concept. Like you're not going to work hard enough. You're not going to put in enough time and energy. And, and I think that there's a lot of people who could really save the world, like really do their part to help the world happen or help the world get better, help this all happen. But you got to Like we got to all start to embrace that. Right. And I, mm-hmm. I struggle with it still to this day. It's like, mm-hmm. I want to do, I'm like, I want to, I want to make sure that like profits are shared in our company really, really effectively in a way that supports not only our team, but our customer too. Cause like you've invested in us by buying our product, right? You've really become a part of this. And I think there's like a lot of responsibility to like close that whole loop and, and really create community around product, create community around what you do. So, I mean, a lot of companies do profit sharing with their team, right? Like employee share, employee owned, things like that. But like, even like step it up, take it a step further and be like, Hey, by the end of the year, we realized like we made some profit off of you, the customer. And realistically, we're trying to offer you value. We're not trying to take from you. We're trying to offer you value. Yeah. I mean, you, you learn a lot of lessons along the way. And I think one of the biggest things that you, you learn when you're operating a business is also market validation. Like you get to the feedback from a product of actually taking a risk and building a business. You also realize if your business is a good fit for the market like an idea that you have that's validated by the people around you, you don't know if that's what the rest of the world thinks either or the rest of the United States or wherever you're marketing your product. And by actually dipping your toe in the water and going for it, you're going to find out if that market is needed. I mean, when Tesla first started making an electric car, people didn't really care about electric cars. They're like, no, it's not going to be a thing. But enough people got around it and there was enough market fit that now you look at all the automakers and now they're making electric vehicles because they realize, oh man, somebody moved the needle on this. And I think it's more, you know, take a, take a shot and move the needle. Absolutely, man. People are watching too. I think it's like that small, that small sentence though is like, he, he didn't, there's a fun quote from him that goes like, he didn't think it was going to (laughs) work. He didn't think Tesla was going to work. Elon Musk was like, no, I just, if I can prove that it, EV doesn't have to be ugly, then, then that's enough. Design plays a huge role in how someone feels about a product. Like, I think that's great. You brought that up because most people, and and I'm not going to blanket this all around, but I believe that most people bought a Prius or a Leaf because one either fit economically into, into their budget and their beliefs and B, it was a way for them to get an electric vehicle and be like, I'm, I'm being conscious about the planet. But if I guarantee they weren't turning their head when a Nissan Leaf drove by, but if an Aston Martin or a Lamborghini or Ferrari or an Audi drove by, they were probably turning their heads at like, wow, that's a good looking car. And it's this idea that these purchases that we make, whether it be a vehicle, whether it be a recreational vehicle, a lot of it's based on design. And it's, and it's in the subconscious of mind. It's kind of how we feel about it. I, I got a chance to, to interview with a guy who, actually the guy who designed the Mazda RX-7. And this was like years ago. And it was interesting because we were talking about what design was all about. And he said it, it was meant to be beautiful. It was meant to be human. So he's like, if you look at the front of cars, cars have faces. 
and, and you can actually see the type of mentality that they have. And you should be able to run your hand across a car and, and literally not have sharp, jarring feelings across your fingers. And you should be able to go around the whole thing without lifting your finger and feel good about that flow. And he had such a thoughtful, intentional way of designing a car. Yes, does it need to be economical at the end of the day? Sure. But there was a design sense to it. And I think that your design thinking that you put into the NS1 is, is super mindful because there isn't really a camper on the market that looks like this at all. And, and if you haven't looked up the NS1 people, look up the NS1. It, it just it looks completely different. And it functions differently, but it falls in that category of teardrop camper. Tell me a little bit about the design of NS1. Like, what was your design mindset around it? Because you made the shape yourself. Yeah, it, it's the funniest thing. So you look at all these cars, though. So you're talking about the the Aston Martin that drives by. It catches your it catches your eye, and it doesn't matter. And that's how Tesla did such an amazing job. Is is they captured it's a good looking car. And then people care about it for that reason. So yeah, if you're looking for an electric vehicle, you're going to get a Tesla. But also if you're just looking for a good looking car, you're going to possibly get a Tesla. And so you look at like in designing the NS1, definitely go check it out on the website. Go go see some pictures of it. Go see the Instagram or whatever. Because I think you can see that it doesn't look, doesn't look like anything else in the camping world. Camping, you expect it to look boxy white with some graphic on the side. Yeah. <laughs> It's just, and, and way too big of a logo, way too big of a brand on it or whatever. Right. And so we had one time somebody walked down the street and uh, he goes, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen ever. Not the coolest camper, not the coolest. Like this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. What is that? Like, and, and I, there's other things that look similar. Right. And the, the thing about aesthetics that I think is so important is that it's really like if you like the aesthetics of a Lamborghini more than a Ferrari, totally <laughs> open to having your opinion on which one looks better, right? Everybody does. I like this more than I like this. I think that looks better than I than that looks. Totally 100%. Like I cannot argue with you. Like the, the actual the actual truth is there's no argument. If somebody likes one more than the other, it's art. It's it's up to you to decide. But aesthetics is not actually it's not nothing, right? Like this idea that, oh, that's aesthetically pleasing is not nothing. And there's so much like to not dive into it too much, but there's, there's a really like foundational natural thing that happens in good aesthetics, right? Like the golden, the golden ratio and the Vitruvius, mm -hmm. the patterns that show up. Aesthetics is just this amazing, like it's this amazing compilation of logic and, and like artistic, like kind of artistic choice but like there's just there's there's so much to it you could even get into color theory so the ns1 is like a hand sculpted object i built it in a backyard and i put it together it was all mdf originally and i like spent time sanding every single curve so like how did we get it to look the way it was was really like initial constraints four by eight sheet of plywood and then knocked off a little bit of the corner on it so that it was rounded so it wasn't just as hard of a rectangle and then like created this back slope, which was kind of a reference to the whole teardrop style. And that was pretty much it. Like rounded the corners a little bit more for no real reason. I think honestly, it was like the lid to a, a lid to like a peanut butter container that was in the garage was like mm. the initial curve. Um, 
So like these little, like just these little moments where you're like, it's just what's there and what's at hand and, and the constraints that you have in this world. Like if I had told you that uh, it's actually seven feet long and it's three and a half feet tall, like why? Well, because I, that's my favorite number or something, but like a four by eight sheet of plywood, the reason they make that is so like ingrained in now in what humans experience day to day, like the width of what a pallet is and how you can ship it across the globe. There's so many constraints. Four by eight sheets of plywood are four by eight feet for like so much reason. If you dug into why it's four by eight, you'd be like, oh, here's the whole backstory of it. So like, it's not, like, there's no real sense to like not reference that um, until that was in the prototyping phase until when we got to the actual production and we weren't gonna build it out of four by eight sheets of plywood anymore. We are actually gonna switch materials and we're gonna build out of composites. And when we switch to composites, it doesn't matter because it's in a roll. It's a six foot roll that's thousands of feet long and you can cut into any length. So now suddenly it's not confined to that four by eight sheet. So well, when we made the changes of what the new the NS1 actually fits and looks like, we made it so that it would be from headboard to footboard, it would fit a queen size mattress. A queen size mattress is a queen size. Like the reason that it's that size though is because of like the average human height. Right. So there's like a really human constraint on the length of our camper. And then we want to put a back kitchen in. So it's like, well, what product is a two burner stove? Okay. So we need to fit a two burner stove in that's 18 inches. So there's all these things that like the aesthetic reason for our camper looking the way it does is really like kind of this funny, like it wasn't really that it wasn't really that designed as much as you'd think it is mm -hmm. all the way through though, to like, it is extremely, extremely defined by these little, little things, right? The window height on our camper is positioned so that if you're sitting on the mattress, that it's at an eye height, like a human average eye height. So now the window is at a position that when you're sitting inside of it, it makes sense. Logical. Like it makes sense. It's like, well, that's an average. So here we go. We're going to put that in there. And so you're just, you're designing around like defined attributes. And so you're just trying to stick as close to that as possible. And when it veers, it goes left or it goes right. Like I remember one time in the design process of it, the two windows weren't going to align because it made sense to get like the headboard as the window as high as possible so that it would be more comfortable, right? It made sense to get that window kind of up as high as it could underneath a cabinet. And then the like other window was positioned at normal eye height. And so they were like kind of getting off kilter. And I remember I'm sitting there and I'm like, eh, no, they should be the same height. So I literally just transferred the line around and I, and I decided like, that's, that's the height of it. They make sense to be the same. So it's like all of these little things is they're the same, right? They're, they, they line up, right? So a bad aesthetic would be like this thing here and this thing here, it's not referencing anything. And it's like, that's really what human, like human intelligence is the ability to tie one thing to another thing. And like, that's what creates like the whole human experience. I don't mean human intelligence. I mean, like human, like human experience is our ability to reference to something else. So a product that looks really good is actually aesthetically pleasing because it's defined by things that make sense. It's not like mm -hmm. no sense there, no sense there. What am I looking at here? It's like, I understand what happens next and as i see it that's another little experience that again makes sense um so the reason for the camper looking good is is kind of i, I mean i'm not going to say by chance or by or lucky but it, it it's like this story of how it just naturally unfolded and became the thing that it is um and over kind of a few prototypes and a few iterations and 
Um, it, but it, it does matter. It, it absolutely matters in the same way that a Tesla looking good matters. Because if you see this thing, um, and I tell you it's an electric camper, you're like, well, I don't like camping and I don't really care if it's electric. I like to cook on propane. It's easy to say no to this like this product that's trying to trying to solve some real problems. It's like let's not fight, let's not fight aesthetics. Like the, if we can utilize that too, and we can put everything in the right place, and, and even branding, you know, it's every detail all the way through, mm-hmm. really, really matter to the product. And what about from a sustainability aspect? Um, one of the topics I've been really trying to dive into lately is this idea that sustainability isn't necessarily the material that you're using it's the resiliency of that material it's the fact that it will last a long time that it's made of quality um, because you can get something that's made out of a more sustainable material which of course i i believe in in researching more sustainable materials for sure but if you're going to be replacing that thing every few years there's an environmental cost of not only replacing it, but disposing it and creating the next one, the energy cost of transporting it, the cost of creating it, and then the cost of sending it somewhere. So what does it look like for you guys in terms of building a product? I mean, you're making an all electric camper, which most of the time that electric and so- and you guys have solar panels on the back is considered sustainable. How is that kind of woven into the DNA of the company? Because it may not be using the most sustainable building products but it is a sustainable product so what what did that kind of look like for you guys when you were looking to optimize this as a product there's such a fine line between a sustainable product and a resilient product and i think in general that's a distinction that needs to be probably discussed more is that like a resilient thing is not that it stays the same it's that when things change around it it adapts to it right so there's really a lot more need for resiliency in our world than there is for sustainability in our world. Like if we want things to stay as they are, they pretty certainly aren't going to. So it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of like a, I don't know, there's a little bit of a problem there just on its own, right. That we, that we're talking about how can we keep things or how can we it's not about that. And so our product the material we use right now, we use a composite, which composites is just, I mean, it's composite is just standing for, it's made out of multiple materials. It's multiple things. It's a composite material. So it's not one thing. So our exterior is fiber, is fiberglass and fiberglass resin. Um, and then our core is balsa wood and grains exposed. So basically that it sucks in some of that resin too and it bonds so that the resin bonds through the glass and into the fiber. So then there's like this, this glass, this weave, this like weaved fabric of the fiberglass is, is suspended in the fiberglass resin. The resin is hardened, um, petroleum-based product, and it basically infuses all of them, glues them all together, and then it creates the shape. So that's how we build our shell right now, is out of this composite, and it's petroleum-based, and fiberglass is made out of silica, and, and so it's mined and harvested out of the world somehow, some way, um, someplace. And the more you dive into any of this type of stuff, man, the more you're going to see that we actually don't get things in a very positive, positive way ever, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's always going to be some type of compromise when we look at materials. So you look at like uh, the new trend and, and the, probably the worst one is if you wanted to go look up like lithium in our world and how we're mining for lithium. So we use batteries and we use, we use solar panels and we use batteries and that makes us like sustainable to a lot of people. And I think the really important thing to note is that we're still harvesting a raw material from the planet 
at the expense of other people's well-being, at the expense of their of their place and their culture and their their world, we're taking from a place for a different reason, right? So it's not petroleum anymore. Now it's lithium. So our, our sustainability is like, if we want to find out what material to use in any of these applications, there's always going to be a cost of doing it, right? There, there's always going to be a cost. So when you look at what is a sustainable material, you, a lot of people would lean toward like, okay, well, we should use trees. We should use wood. Wood is a, is a sustainable product because we can regrow it in the time period where, why aren't you building this thing out of wood? And the reality is that like, we now have monoculture farms for, for, trees and that's now its own problem because it's not a habitat it's not a place we're not harvesting anything we're monoculture farming trees and that's that's its own problem on its own right and we don't need to get into agricultural sustainability issues mm -hmm. but there's a bunch there too and so you look at like it's not about using a tree and it's not like petroleum yeah we do we we're gonna the reality of it as much as it might hurt us to say or might not be awesome to understand this but like they're gonna keep drilling for oil for sure. Mm -hmm. Like whether we like that or we don't like that, no one's shutting down, no one's shutting down the oil industry tomorrow. Like it's not happening. It will go and become obsolete. I feel very, very confident that we will, it will become obsolete, right? We have to live in a post petroleum world. Like we, that, that has to happen mm -hmm. sooner rather than later. But right now that's a material that's extremely durable, really long lasting. And then you embody into it right now. There's so many systems of how you can pipe. We've built infrastructure to pipe oil. So it runs literally to where we want to process that oil. Like we have built one of the most incredible systems of efficiency that humans have ever seen just to get oil to where it gets to. And we've done a lot of horrible things to make it to too, for sure. That, but that's, that's the world we've created now. And now we have this infrastructure. So let's make sure we're utilizing what we've created in a way that actually puts us into a like positive location going forward, right? Like we can say there's a lot of problems getting here, but let's not ignore the fact that now they exist. Like it wouldn't be smart to just be like, we're done with this tomorrow. So in the short term, we use petroleum. And I think material sustainability is more about how long life, how long of a life we can give that thing rather than how quickly we can regenerate it. Because I think that walks us closer to the edge quicker than just finding something that's going to be long lasting and durable for the lifespan of it. So, yeah. And I, I think you're going into a really interesting topic just in terms of material sustainability, because material science right now is a huge, huge focus um, because we're looking for solutions. We're working we're looking for ways to build things out of other things. And yes, you could consider bamboo is incredibly strong. It's incredibly resilient. It grows fast. It's a natural air purifier, hundred um, percent. And, and I think a lot of people, even, even listening to this would, would totally be on the, on the side of, Hey, like, what are we doing with oil? Why are, you know, why are we still drilling for what, you know, especially with what happened in the Gulf of Mexico a few days ago? Um, like, yeah, but, but the reality of it is it's like, for me, my standpoint is it's a shift that the world's going to eventually make anyway, because at the, at the end of the day, it, it is a finite resource. There's only so much of it that can be consumed. You can't create more of it. So it will run out eventually. And part of the sustainability conversation is also how do we engineer a way that we can actually move forward past this finite resource being gone. Um, and, and at the end of the day, when we start designing with different products, there's still a cost to all of those products. Like you mentioned with lithium, 
there's a cost to actually being able to mine that to create it to put a whole supply chain together and and when we start developing products they they have a lifespan and i think it really comes down to how long do we keep our things because a lot of recycled materials stuff right now like i i mean my my shoes are made out of recycled water bottles and they actually last incredibly well i love them they're great but if you take that same material and apply it to something that needs to stand up to intense heat or intense flexibility or just something that that is not made for you're going to end up replacing products faster and then you have a whole waste cycle to deal with there's a whole book by like william mcdonahue that's cradle to cradle and a definite must read for anybody in this world but it's thinking through that whole cycle from product creation all the way through to its end of life and what it becomes next so you look at rivian right now their batteries once they're not able to perform the task of like providing mobility in the in the rivian truck they're going to be going and powering other like other developments and other things that aren't quite as like voltage required they don't require that yes. voltage so there's a lot of cycles you can get out of these in the ev world you can get a lot of cycles out of a lithium battery but you can't get necessarily peak performance that long and so they're running into the issue of like they're using lithium and their product lifespan in its application its initial application is really short but it can be lengthened by having it have a secondary function after that right so by giving it a secondary function you've now said okay well we're doing this now and we're doing that next so that mindset is now it does is lithium as good as something else it's actually now a matter of okay well however good it is to use for this this is going to get used twice so we've automatically mm -hmm. created like double the value and uh i think that that's a really important understanding of like how we function going forward needs to needs to make better sense of that from the simple standpoint of there's like a, an actual limit to what we can do on this planet right like there is and if i don't mean to i don't mean to get like too philosophical with it but there's a limit there is an amount of space there's an amount of sun that comes there's an amount of time between rainstorms and like there are some really like high level natural systems that let let's not ignore those. There's some real limits on what the world actually looks like. There's, there's the number that I've heard, and it's probably plus or minus and whatever, we're at 8 billion people today, that the carrying capacity of the earth, what you would look at, like from an ecological standpoint, the carrying capacity of a certain ecosystem to hold a number of a certain animal, right? If I say that this little defined ecosystem can support 50 foxes, it has a carrying capacity for foxes of 50. That just is saying that that ecosystem has enough food, enough water. It's a localized, regional enough environment that like the amount of land that the fox can travel to hunt and get water, this is its local ecosystem. It's not going to go up and over this ridge. In this area, it can hold 50 foxes. The same is true. We can still do that same exact like math and reason. We can still do that with humans. And that, that upper limit they talk about is like 10 billion people. So that's a lot of the reason for us to be really, really hopeful about what we can do going forward is that we're not there. Like we are not the carrying capacity. This isn't a matter of whether or not there's enough for humans like to live and reasonably be sustained on this earth. It's not a question of that, right? Like I think sometimes it gets really terrifying that like, oh no, there's not enough for every, there is. Like that is the really like good thing to rest your hat on and then go back to work tomorrow for all of us is to understand that like there's enough here for us to even grow the population right even grow how many humans there are and how many lives and how many wonderful amazing things that we can like create through just the human experience right 
that's here for us to do. But we have to start being way better about understanding that like it's our generation and the next, right? It's our generation and then it's life on, right? Like we, we really do. And I think every generation plays with it, but it's about making sure that the little short-term things that we're seeing in our world today don't become long-term, like long-term ways of life. As we've sped up through industrial revolution all the way to now and with the tech and the internet, the way it's gone, I mean, there is so much ability to communicate and get things done. Like the speed at which things happen today, even versus 10 years ago or 20 years ago, is like, I mean, on a, on a human level is creating anxiety in us and it's creating a lot of stresses in our life, but it's, it's incredible what can happen in the short term, but we got to re-lengthen that time period that we're focused on. And so I think there's a lot of just understanding that if I'm going to buy an NS1 camper, it should be something that I'm going to give to the next person too, that I'm going to hand down to my kids and they're going to use as well. And so if we re redefine like our, our product design to be focused on like longevity and, and like, and, and these like really good principles for what we're building, I think you're going to have a lot more success keeping things like in the future sustainable. I think we're going to be more resilient if we focus on that too, because it's not going to turn into junk. Um, and there, there is, man, it, it's, it's so funny to, to, to kind of have this conversation because as I'm sitting here, you start to think about like, there is so much ability to create long lasting products, things that like create lifetime value and, and are really efficient but there's also so many theoretical limits that we fight against. So I think there's like the whole piece of, um, and I'm, there's like just a lot of information and this is probably a little dense, but basically there's a solar, like a solar panel is only as effective as there is sun on that like square foot of earth, right? The amount of energy it can capture, it can't capture more energy than is actually getting here. Mm -hmm. And then from like, there's all these like thermodynamics and all this, uh, all these types of physics that like, limit what we could actually then actually use for anything else right so the amount of energy that hits a square foot and then actual like laws of physics that necessitate loss of heat through this and this and through resistance and yada yada you could go into it and say there's a theoretical limit i think it's like 31 percent efficiency in a solar panel like theoretical like scientific theory not just i theorize this but like a scientific theory that it's 31 percent efficient we're at something like 20 four 25% efficient right now in our solar panels. So there's a lot of people that say like, no, 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 sustainable. Like we're going to, we're going to switch to solar power and we're going to, it's like, no, we're like kind of as good as we can do with solar power. And so it really comes back to, to me and what the NS one is and what this experience of it is. It's like, it has a ton of battery and it has this amazing ability to let you cook or let you stay warm or get hot water. And some of our customers aren't ready for this news yet, right? I'm sure there's people who buy an NS1 that are not ready for this day to happen. Uh, but there's no reason you need hot water to shower it. You can bathe in cold water and it's actually really good for you. Go, go research Wim Hof, right? It's really yeah. good for you <laughs> to be with cold water. It's, it's great for the body. It's great for the whole system, right? So hot water is a luxury only because right now we view it as a necessity and it's not. It's not, that's probably why it's a luxury. So yeah, long-term, I would love in the future for people not to shower in this amazing spa with hot water, but like jump in a mountain lake and go for a swim and, and like reattach with real life, right? And, and I don't want them to use the heater in our camper. We insulated the walls really well. And if you take care of them, they're gonna keep you warm 
for years and years and years, right? Like there's an aluminum foil layer that's going to reflect heat back. There's a sound insulation layer. So it's going to sound amazing. It's going to be warm in there. It's going to be sealed off. It's going to be airproof, waterproof. One day, rather than turning on the heat, because we have the electricity for it or the power for it, just, I, I really hope the world like cuddles with the people we love a little bit more, right? Like, mm -hmm. come on in. If it's freezing, like, let's get close together. Let's be warm yes. together. Like, I just really don't understand exactly why we fear away from that when it's like really what everybody wants. Like, if you look at like at a core level, what we're all chasing and what we all want in this life is like great human experiences with people that we care about and in a world that we can understand and we can communicate with, right? And we have the tools to communicate with them. We have the tools to see other people and respect other people and understand large, complex, crazy issues. But like, at the end of the day, come back to the people that are in your life and the experiences you actually wanna have. And it's about like creating something that's never gonna fall apart for you as long as I can possibly make it. Whatever material will last the longest is what we're gonna use. There's ways to get that material reused. There's bioresins and there's flaxseed fibers and things that we're exploring on our side to do the work to actually get a really amazing, like take a part of our waste cycle and really re-ingrain it with creation of new things, right? Which when we can stop thinking of waste as waste and we can re-enter it, like that's where there's gonna be really amazing abundance in our world for everybody is when we stop saying that goes in the trash. No, that doesn't go in the trash. That goes to the next person who needs it for something. And it's like when we can start to redistribute waste then you don't have you don't have things that are thrown out. You don't have human experiences and people that are thrown out either. And I think we do that a lot. We we throw out the baby with the with the water or whatever it is, pretty regularly. And and that's like the real key to sustainability is at the end of the day, when your NS1's battery dies, because it will, because lithium batteries aren't that good. And when your solar panel breaks, which it will, because we gave you the best solar panel we could, but like it's gonna break too, because that's the way that those products have been engineered and designed to this time in human history. Like when those inevitable things happen, the product that we built shouldn't have gone anywhere. The wood cabinet should still be beautiful and well-built and it should be long lasting and it should still hold your stuff that you value. The shell should still keep you protected and warm. Um, the bed should still be a place that's comfortable for you. And it should still give you the core necessities of life, right? Like it should mm -hmm. still provide those things that are really human. And it should actually, at the end of the day, when those things go away, hopefully you're prepared to actually kind of embrace the discomforts that are really, really like important to our, to our like whole life out here. So I love how you sum that up. If you look at campers, any type of camper on the market, most of them have flexible walls because they're not well-built. They have things that break regularly and you guys have built a product that is meant to last. And, and when you think about that life cycle, being able to do something with a bioresin, I mean, that, that goes right into the idea of a circular economy, which is not, not a discussed topic enough, in my opinion, um, is what do we do with those life cycles? And, and one of the guests that have been on the podcast, Derek from Mint Systems, incredible guy. We were talking about micro energy grids, um, because he's, he works in that space. And yeah, that's, that's the concept of the lithium ion batteries. It's, there is a life cycle to them after a car, you can do, you can take them and put them in another, another environment. You could do it in lights. You could do small microgrids as, you know, ancillary type of powered up only in an emergency type of batteries. And the lithiums can last a little bit longer in that environment. And it's just changing our mindset around what is 
a waste product versus what is a product that can still be used for something else. And I think that we've been so conditioned in our society to move on to the next, um, that it's not about how can we make this last and how can we make it last a lot longer because we're, we're constantly shown the new, the best, the brightest, the greatest, whatever it is, it's always new, right? But, but things still function just fine. Um, and, and, you know, at a certain, at a certain point, your iPhone four won't necessarily be able to unlock because iOS 15 will, or iOS 20 will just cause it to break. However, what can those components be used for afterwards? Apple likes to melt them down and put them in other products. Like it, there's, there's a way to continue our cycle instead of consuming more, we are consuming more consciously in a way that we can do it more holistically and give it a longer product cycle. And I think that what you guys are doing with NS1 um, and the rest of CampWorks, I mean, is just, it's thinking about a problem and providing a solution that has multiple facets to it. I mean, almost like when you were in college and you were saying, you can park this on the side of your house and now you have a spare bedroom or you can take it somewhere else and now you have a vacation home. Like you're, you're trying to provide solutions in so many different ways in one package. And I think that's, that's why I have so much, so much respect for what you guys are building because you're not just throwing together a camper. You're providing a solution for somebody to experience nature, to be out in nature, to be off grid for a week if they want to be, and to still have a lot of the comforts that they're used to having at home. It's so inspiring how much other work is getting done too. And when you look around at what people are creating and the work they're doing, it's for us. Yeah. I want you to get outside and really enjoy that moment. But the really cool piece is that when we start to all work together and we work on these little projects, the, the amazing thing that's happening in our world is it's going to be awesome to get outdoors and use the NS1, right? It's going to, you want to go reattach with nature. You want to get out someplace, go someplace special. Like I think there's this ability for us to create an amazing network of off-grid out there types of experiences for anybody to go enjoy, right? Without having these like really like negative impacts of a lot of the off-road, off-grid travels and, and kind of the problems that even that like that can create. But I think there's a way for us to really tie that in with this off-grid experience that really is tied back into it. And, and, and nature is amazing, but if you're not going to go, then it's not that amazing. So we want to offer amenities where, yeah, anybody's going to go enjoy that and understand what they're looking at. Because um, you know, I get it. I get it. You might be like huge into video games. That might be the thing that's the most amazing experience in your life. I, I remember coaching 12 year old kids and they could not stop playing Fortnite. And I'm like, I mean, I used to play video games, but like not this much, but it's, it's like, it's the whole way they connect with their friends. Mm -hmm. It's, it's like mm -hmm. add AIM instant messenger, but depending on your generation, imagine when you just used to take the phone with the cord all the way into the other room and be like, no, mom, dad, I'm on the phone right now with my friend from down the street. Add all of those experiences of being with people right now. You can add all of them together. You don't have to run down the street to play basketball and then come back and do this. It's like, there's a way to do everything that we need to do, take care of ourselves, take care of our health, take care of our well-being, but also like play video games, and interact with people. So when you start to acknowledge that like that's human life too, and that's enjoyable for a lot of people, then you create something that's like the NS1 is really trying to put that space where if you need it to be that, then it is that wherever you are, right? Like 
if you want to be able to still tune in and play some Fortnite with the with the boys, then go do it. Like that's fine. Like it's not about discriminating anybody's experience, but mm-hmm. hopefully incentivizing and creating like a way for people to be in a place that they really truly love. And and that's where I think a lot of like modern architecture, modern architecture and modern modern city planning, like there's a really as much as there's great innovative work happening out there in the world, the way that we've built the world to this point has not been focused around like the actual like decentralized anything, right? Decentralized anything hasn't been created. I mean, you're seeing a lot of design lately um, designed around community, a lot more community spaces, a lot more places for people to gather. I think we went through a stage where it was about isolation and, and more, I mean, we went through a stage of isolation as a global community for a year and a half too. Um, but it, it is also, I feel like human connection is something that humans desire naturally. And, and there's also a connection with nature that I think people desire naturally. Um, there's, there's something about waking up and it being quiet and you're out in nature and you wait, you don't need an alarm clock. You still wake up early somehow, usually when you're camping. And it's, it's just one of those things where there's a natural rhythm to how people live their lives. And I think sometimes we, we force it one way instead of flowing with it. Um, and I, I think, I mean, even just thinking about having an electric camper, like think about the concept of if any of you have ever camped in a place where there are RVs, you most likely at eight in the morning, hear someone's generator turn on and everybody goes, well, there goes the quiet. And there's always one person in there that says that. And you guys have provided a solution where you can still make that breakfast and, and do what you need to do, but you're not making, you're not changing the habitat around you. And I think that that's, that's a really important concept is like, we are cohabitating with, with nature and the community around us, not imposing ourselves on that community and habitat around us dude that's a that's a brilliant insight into it all too like that's exactly that's exactly the point of a lot of it too is we have sound insulating panels and there's there's two sides of it i always joke that i can get so loud and so passionate and be like when i'm when i'm like talking about something i care about i'll start yelling and people are like whoa 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 you don't have to yell i'm like no i just really care i really care about this one um but I remember like in going through that, I was like, I want a space where when my wife and I are sitting there and we're having a conversation, I don't want it to feel too loud. Like I don't want it to ring wrong. I don't want it to like actually be piercing, you know? And I think that people use that as like, um, like rhetorical like device or whatever. Right? I don't think people actually understand, but that's actually true. Like if I use the wrong tone, it really on a, like on a personal level, it will ring wrong to that other human being and they won't hear what you're actually saying. And so our, our ability to communicate has gotten so much better than our like actual tone. So yeah, we can, there's some emotional awareness and things that we can continue to work on as humans. We can get better at that. We're smart enough to do it, but there's also on another level, I know way more words to describe how I'm feeling than, than I actually like could interpret my voice to say, right? And so I want to create a space that's really good for people to be in on a, on a small scale, but also outside of you, you shouldn't hear that either. If I want to go, and this is like a big thing for just housing design in the future too, not just in the NS1, 
you have to make sure that your neighbor's rights to do what your neighbor wants to do are what they want to do. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, you can do anything as long as it doesn't impact somebody else's rights to do that. And I think about like the moment I, I always would consider is an older couple. We can maybe put this in our world and we can maybe see it like an older couple that's like the neighbor next door is a renter and they throw a loud party and they're this old and they don't want to. They call the cops and they create a problem. And this other people next door are just trying to have fun, right? They're just trying to do their thing. So yeah, so should that person next door throw the party and play their music loud? There's kind of these weird like two pieces of it. I think it's both. That person has a right to peace and quiet and that person has a right to extremely loud music. In a specific controlled area, they both have that right. They absolutely have that right. Like that is for each individual, a necessity that we offer there, like we offer them their ability to do it. So the soundproofness of housing so that it's not like noise pollution is a type of pollution, not very often talked about. Light pollution is a type of pollution, not very often talked about. But when you start to realize that our houses, our buildings need to be designed in a way that absolutely limit noise pollution so that the neighbor next door doesn't call the cops on the neighbor who's having fun. Absolutely. It needs to have both. And that's a failure of the building to do it, right? That's a failure of the built space. So you, what we're doing, and it comes back to the NS1, right? It comes back to what CampWorks is kind of about, but what it's trying to be is this really small package of things that work all over the place that are just a good design concept if you're in nature because you're afraid of bears and a bear walks through your site, so you don't want to hear it. Or you're in a neighborhood and you have a place where you're like, I'm going to just crash outside. But maybe you park it in the street and then you're watching a video and somebody walks by and they, they're like, oh, you're in there watching, watching TV and they have a problem. Whatever it is, let's just make sure that you can be in any place and just be like, do you and, and enjoy your life the way it needs to be. So the future of our world, I think there's like so much that's going to be, you say that, that attachment with nature and it's really human. It's like, I think there's like a, on a core level, we need that. I don't know how everybody's going to take this one. And I think this one is like one that's really up for debate. And a lot of people, you can fall on either side. And I think there's some great discussion to be had on it, but I don't see, I, I don't see the future of all the technology we have consuming us. It's like that relationship that we want to have with technology and with AI, if you want to, if you want to get into that level too, the relationship we want to have with it is what we want it to be. And I don't know why, I don't know why it can't be something that promotes us doing the things we really love, right? And and with people that we really love too. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it comes down to a lot of needs versus wants, I guess, or, or at least perceived needs. We need connection. We need to be surrounded by good people. And we need nature. And we need really mindfully crafted things. Whether that's experiences, whether that's products, whether that's food that's grown, it's it's living consciously, I think, is the biggest thing that we need as a society is to is to live in a way that we're aware of what we're doing, we're mindful about what we're doing, because then all of the distractions, all of the things, all of the bright, shiny objects every single day that we're surrounded by, suddenly only few of them show up because we're able to discern what's actually important. I love that, dude. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's a finding things that you love, man. That's the, 
I look at it from a product standpoint too, right? Because obviously we're in this world and we're talking about like having less stuff and 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 I agree, man. It creates that it creates so much more room for that relationship to grow. And uh, you look at like that the fancy house, the beautiful apartment with like the marble countertops or whatever, right? Like the the beauty of it um, as this like indicator of your worth and your wealth and your and your stature. And and it's like there's a really big contrast between it because I think if you define yourself in this world, you want to, you want to have success. You want nice things because it, the world does reward you with money to spend on those things. It really does. If you work really hard and you do, it doesn't always, I mean, there's some bad luck that happens too, but I think that, I think that at the end of the day, it is pretty good. Capitalism as a whole does a good job of creating those things. Like if you add value to the world, you get value in in money though. And, and that's where there's a detachment is because you provide value to the world and then you end up with stuff that doesn't mean anything to you. And you end up with stuff that's like, wait, this is actually detaching me further and further from it. It's like the, the stories you hear of people like have all the wealth in the world and then they're still unhappy. They have the beautiful house and the beautiful car and the this and the that. And it's like, well, because you're actually hiding your happiness. You're hiding, these, you're hiding from it behind these things, behind these products. At the same time, though, totems, like actual totems, like a real object that means something to you. I have on my shelf right outside my office here as we're doing this, I have three just random rocks that I picked up off a beach after I lost my aunt. And I picked them up and I was throwing rocks. But for whatever reason, these three didn't get thrown. They got put in a pocket. And it was just, it was that little of a thing. But it was like the whole experience, it happened in a time... I lost her, but I lost her in a time in my life where there's a million other things happening. And it was like, I was really making some progress on who I wanted to be and how I wanted to, like, she was, she was the aunt that I was probably most like inspired by sometimes. And so I really wanted to be able to show her, you know, like show her my success, I think to some degree. Right. And, um, so it was like, I picked those up in a moment and in a journey in my life where these are like really important objects to me. They are worth nothing. There's a beach on the north side of Long Island where you could pick up three identical stones. Like they wouldn't even look different. And if you swapped them out on me, I probably wouldn't even notice. But there's still something that like, I won't get rid of those now. Like that's an object that if I was living out of this little NS1 camper, they'd be in there. And so there's like a real understanding of the value of objects and products in our life and the role they play. Like if you buy great clothes that last a lifetime, you buy one pair of boots that lasts you 50 years, they'll probably be your favorite pair of boots because they're great boots. You buy one that's fashionable or trendy or looks great or was a great deal. How many times have we bought something and then looked at it later? I'm like, I don't even, ugh, like it hurts that I ever spent any money on that. I'm so disgusted that I would have... I could have turned into X, Y, and Z that would have been valuable to me. And instead I have this thing. And so there's so much about like products in our life. It's not about getting rid of it, right? And I think that's the thing people are really like, our generation really needs to get good at is like, it's not about accumulating stuff. It's about getting things that really, really matter to us, like really speak to us and serve a real purpose in our life. Um, and, and yeah, there that comes from great product design from anybody who's on the design side of this. If you're building something, build something great. Like don't, if you don't think it's the, it. yeah, if you don't think it's the best thing you can build, don't build it. And if you're not going to go to work to make sure that it's right, like 
we really need to make sure that we're focused on those things in the future. Um, but man, that's, that's great products and that attachment to it. I, I also, there's always two things from me. And I think the other side of that is the other thing you mentioned was just that nature. And I think nature to me, I think if I had to redefine it, man, um, I'm going to take your word. Let's see, you know, if you feel like this is a good definition as well. So the way I would define it is nature is when things happen that are unexpected and unplanned for and not necessarily ideal, but end up being the best part of it. Um, that's, that's, I would say was what nature probably actually ends up being. Yeah. I mean, I, I hundred percent agree with that because, and it's so easy to get caught up in, you know, the, I mean, the race, if you will, of having the nicer stuff. And, and it's not to say like, you know, don't buy things that are well-made because the whole point of this is to buy things that are actually well-made and well-designed, um, and, and you want them to last. Um, but it also has to be a need at the end of the day. And, you know, if you're going to go buy a product and it's just like one of those products that you usually are just going to, you know, buy and get in two days from Amazon or, you know, buy and buy on the spot and then take it home. Don't think about it for a day and figure out if you really want that the next day and maybe even wait two days, three days and see if it's still something you want. If it is, then maybe you really do want it and maybe it, and maybe it will mean something to you. But if it was just because you were caught up in the hype and you were just like, man, I just, whew, I had a rough day, so I need to go buy something like, you know, pause for a sec and then just see, is this something that, that will bring me more value in my life. I'm sitting here at my office in the shop here and I'm sitting on a metal folding chair that had been in my dad's basement for 10 years unused and, and like sitting at a table that I built. And it's like, I did, I, I think there's a funny piece of um, trying to avoid those things and like avoid stuff. I'm like, I, I constantly, I don't know when I buy clothes, but I can, I can give away a bag of clothes once a month. I'm like, I don't know where I, they come from, but it's just this constant weeding out process of like, my, my life, if you saw it, man, it's like, I have my 10 shirts that I wear, my 10 shorts. I have packed bags for climbing. I have a packed bag for skiing. I have a packed bag for camping. All of my packed bags can fit in my car at any given time. I have a suitcase that I can put all my favorite clothes in. I probably can't fit all my clothes in, but I could fit all my favorite clothes in the suitcase. All of them pack into my car. I could take literally everything that's meaning. And then I have my work bag, which is just a little backpack that has a pad of paper, a notebook and my computer. I could put every single thing into my car in about five minutes. I, I mean, every pack bag that, that's there, but it's like, but you look at it, I would have everything I need to go rock climbing, to go skiing, to go camping. I would have everything I need to go do business, like to do work. I, I would have everything I need to go be educated or entertained or play a video game or do whatever. And it's like, it could be packed up that quickly that's not having very little to me. That's actually the opposite. That's having, that's having a wealth of things. That's having a lot of stuff um, because it's all, it's all out of its own way. It's all out of it. I, I still, I still want a chair. I still want to design a chair that I love, but um, I, I think it's like keeping those things out of the way and, and not putting money into those, into those pursuits is probably one of the biggest like success. Like one of the biggest things that you can also do to help you if you want to say like feel successful, I think there's always that totem like that, that or that like token piece of, of society. It's like, we do want to be successful, man. I, I definitely want to be mm -hmm. defined by things that I do well and things that I, that, uh, 
that that mean a lot to me, right? Like, I think that that's really important not to get detached from that either. I think there's like this whole minimis, minimalist lifestyle. It's like, mm-hmm. no, I want my character to be really high. I want my I want my successes and my impacts to be really high. I want to make sure that there's people's lives that I've actively improved. And I think that there's a lot of desire to have things, but I think they're refocused on, on, on other people. And, and I'm, I'm happy you mentioned that it's not about necessarily being a minimalist because that's, that's not something I, I, I think the minimalism movement while, while good and powerful from the sense of getting people to rethink how much they are consuming, I think that coming from a place of limitation makes it almost a regretful decision for many that decide to get rid of everything. Um, it's, it's more being mindful about it. And so like the stuff that you have is not in excess. You don't have five bags of ski clothes and five bags of climbing clothes. You have what you need to do the things that you enjoy in life. And I think that that's, that's a sustainable lifestyle. And that's actually why I started this was like, it's not about selling everything you have and living in a van and just like that's sustainability because it's, it's not, it's about, it's about living in a way that fulfills us, but doing it in a conscious way and doing it in a fully circular economy mindset. Um, if you can reuse something, if you can extend the lifespan of it, if you can buy quality, that's sustainability in my mind. And so I think a lot of people, when they first listen to this podcast, they'll think it's purely going to be, you know, about solar panels and water and like all of these things. And those are all topics I love covering but it's in a very different way um, because it, it is a bigger picture. Um, I, I would love to hear from, from you, like what, cause I, I've always loved your outlook on, on honestly life and, and the value of community and people. And, and it's one of the things that I know is in the core of CampWorks are the people that are at CampWorks and the product that you guys create as, as you actually built this company what was your, what was your goal? And if that goal is consistent, what is your goal of, of running CampWorks as a company, both as like an operator of that company? So what, what's your vision for the inside of that company? And then what is your vision for CampWorks as a whole, as a company? What impact do you want to have on the world? There's so many things that are like long-term goals of, I would love to do this, right? And the one that I always come back to is, the long-term goal of CampWorks is to play a significant role. Maybe not even CampWorks. My personal pursuit in life, long-term goal, is to help get as many people from homelessness to part of community as absolutely possible. That's like a personal pursuit and a long-term thing, though, because it's, it's such a complex issue. And right now, if I told you what I'm doing on that, I'd tell you I'm trying to design a really, really good door to our camper. And you'd say that seems detached, but it is a part of that, right? Because it has to work. All these different things have to work really, really well for it to end up being able to be a solution. So that's our long-term goal, but it's something that we're probably not actively working on. And so I think it's, it's easy for companies to get caught in that space. Um, of like, oh, well, we're, we want to do this. It sounds so good. Um, and, and while that matters a lot to me, the, the reality is that like you, you can focus on something long-term like that and you can try and you should every day. That should be something where you refocus and you find like, how is what I did today important to my core, 
like something I really believe in doing. And if it's really not on any given day, like maybe take a breather, maybe reset, or, or maybe completely redefine what, what like that success is looking like. Um, our short term, the thing that camp works is really, really defined by, and what's been, I mean, from a business perspective, like our first quarter, our second quarter, like the business goals that we had set and the things that we achieved as a company in Q1, Q2. We're a young company, right? And I think of it as like a lot of people say we're a startup, but the reality is like we just got to get good at operating and doing the thing that we do. Um, our, our biggest thing has been creating a workspace for people that like legitimately care about the vision of what's happening here and, and also really respecting and caring about them. So right now, we're trying to build this great product and we're trying to do these long-term things, but on the short term, it's about finding people that, I think there's a lot of like weighted words that I'm going to try and like not say these weighted words because I think that it sounds a little bit wrong. Um, but basically investing in people that are going to be here to do this, right? And not having a short-term outlook on anything. We constantly have chosen to do things in our company at CampWorks the hardest way, the hardest way we can do them, right? Because it's so much easier to find the right employee to put together a product on a manufacturing floor that has experience and expertise in that space, but maybe isn't the character of person that you want to build a great company with or that you want to do things with long-term. And so we've had a really big focus on creating a workplace and a team that comes every day and, and can sit there and listen to like mental health podcasts on the shop floor, right? That can actually come together and collaborate and can work together, right? That can set a long-term goal of how we want the company to function and how we want to make it like not exclusionary, but really inclusive so that we can get a lot of really great people to come together and work, whether or not you can lift 10 pounds or a hundred pounds, whether or not you have a great background with a table saw or whether you don't. And I think that a lot of it is trying to create that space takes a really long time. It's, it's very, very difficult to do, but staying focused on that and letting people, you know, letting people know that you're trying to take care of them. Um, it would have been way easier early on in our company to just find people that could just spit out campers. But instead we focus really on building team and people and community here that when somebody shows up, I mean, they'll drop, they'll drop what they're doing and they'll have a conversation with you. They'll make you feel welcome and make sure that you understand what you're looking at. And, and I, I want that to be through and through like the experience of people in this world, because it's great what we make for other people and the experience that I want to give through our camper to others. But if it's at the expense of us, and if it's at the expense of things that like are really, really important, it's, it's really easy to put short-term profits in front of people and in, in front of systems and in front of that, like human and, and that like community-based like idea. And, um, there's all, I mean, to also look at there's, we've worked really long hours. We put in a ton of work and there's people that are definitely struggling with how much work this has been. And, and I mean, in our company, but it's like trying to create a place like where their stress is because we're doing something important for sure. But like really try to reground in, in keeping our, our people in the right spot, right? Like doing the best we can from that perspective. And, and we'll see long-term, I think that's going to pay off pay off huge because you're doing right by others as much as you possibly can yeah and i and i think that translates directly into into the product that you guys make um because at the end of the day you mentioned that you're designing this product and building this product for humans to enjoy 
and we've we've talked about just the idea of the love and the craftsmanship that goes into building something and how that's lost when you start to just prefab manufacture as fast as possible that artisanship that craftsmanship that love is lost um and i think by putting so much importance on the people that are that are building these that are working side by side every day and and part of this company culture it makes the product better at the end of the day it makes the impact of the company bigger at the end of the day and i think that the customer on the other end they can feel that because they know that it was crafted with literal love dedication and and a community that really cares about that person having the best product and the best experience that they can have uh, compared to any other product on the market. Absolutely, um, man. Absolutely. Think about sustainability from that perspective too, is whether or not your, your manufacturing process is sustainable, right? It's not about just the materials that go into it or the experience for our customer to have that is like, are we going to burn out doing this? Or are you going to feel overworked or <laughs> mm -hmm. a funny little example, man, we have right now in our build process and we're working through everything to find the right, the right way to do so many different tasks, like the overall design, but now really like refining that and getting into the details and, and figuring out how we can do it. But there's a process right now that requires being inside of a composite petroleum based, right? Like this, it's not, it's not, I mean, to sand it. I'm going to tell you a story about how you have to sand right now. And it creates this like little dust and you have it's itchy fiberglass. It's not awesome. It is really, truly not mm -hmm. awesome. And it is a, it is a bad process and it sucks that it has to be done. And I remember a few days ago sitting there as it needed to get done. And I was like, I'll do that one because there's no way that I'm going to ask somebody else to ever do that. And I think of it as like, there's so much of like, is it sustainable? I think that, that we got to start to ask that is like, is this a process worth doing? And because everything we do, it has to improve human life. Like that, that has to be the focus of anything we're doing. If you're designing a great product or building a great product, or if you come to work here, like you got to, I want it to be someplace that somebody's life is better because of, right? At full stop through the product, through the vision of it, through the marketing material, whatever it is, however we can touch your life and be a part of it. Like that's the focus is how can we improve it? And this process is really a pain in the butt. And I'm like, well, I'll hop in. Are people, are we complaining about it? I did it the first time we're on, we're only on unit six of our young company's history. Like six NS1s are going to be out in the world as of tomorrow. And I'm sitting there like, okay, I did it the first time. And then the next two times somebody else did it how big of a pain is it? Because the first time I did, it, I was like, it's not horrible. It's not awesome. And then I heard everybody and I went back and I'm like, I did it. And I was like, ah, yeah, we got to stop doing this. It's pretty simple. It's not like, oh, I'll pay you extra or, or no, I, or, or even worse yet, I pay you, you know, you go do <laughs> that crappy task. And it's because like, who pays you? Who's in charge? It's like, no, it's just a stupid world that we live in sometimes because if there's that big of a problem where somebody's like getting itchier, they're doing something that's cramped or difficult. Is our product going to be something that my team wants to show up and build again tomorrow? If I make them do that, are they going to want to show up and even put it together? And so, you know, I didn't make them do that. And I hopped in and I said, okay, well, I'll do it because at the end of the day, I'm not going to stop doing this tomorrow, even though that sucked. 
and I'm going to redesign it. I'm, I'm the person who got to design it in the first place. If what I designed necessitates you being uncomfortable and maybe even borderline putting you in an unhealthy situation, I got to, as a designer, as, as, as an employer, as a person, as a human, I have to find a way to not make that happen, right? Like mm-hmm. that has to change. And, and so you look at that is how products should be built and that's how sh- companies should be built. The, the really hard part, Steve, and I think, you know, on a, on a real look behind the scenes of it level is if people don't understand that, it's really, really difficult to have consumer market, you know, like to, to reach the market. And, and I think that that's, that's why a lot of sustainable products struggle. And I think why it's hard to do things really the right way. And there's always cor- corners cut or supply chain things or manufacturing things that are like, we sweep that under the, 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 the rug, but it's like, how is my customer who's wanting to go on a summer vacation going to really truly understand that like, Hey, your product's not here and your trip's delayed because I won't make somebody go do that. Right. Like the value to them isn't a product that was built without somebody being uncomfortable. It Mm -hmm. should be, but our world's not exactly defined for it. So there's a lot of that fight that a lot of brands are going to have to make. And as a, as a community that we, that's why we got to really understand how things are made, why they're made the way they're made and, Mm -hmm. and really support that effort because it would have been cheaper and easier for us to hire somebody who didn't care about the well-being of others, who didn't care about like the long-term vision of this, was willing to cut corners, but was just going to do it anyway and wasn't going to create something where we all wanted to show up to work the next day and really build a team and a community and, and create good company culture and customer. Like, There's so many ways we could have cut corners to get to where we are, and we've chosen not to. And, and, the, and the market as a whole might not know that. They might not know. They may know. They may not know. But you know that's that's so much of what we have to do. And so how do you communicate those things, right? It's not just about look at this NS1, but that comes back to our conversation on aesthetics. I don't want to fight every single battle. So if it just looks beautiful, it looks good. Maybe people just choose it because of that. And, mm-hmm. and if they just choose it because of that, then we're going to sneak in there and actually be like a sustainable company that does something meaningful in this world without them even knowing it. And that'd be okay. Um, yeah. So what's your what's your hope for campworks in the long run where where is campworks going are you guys building bigger units focusing on the ns1 are you guys you know what's the if i know it's very very hard to think you know 10 20 years down the road but where does where does tommy see campworks in the future yeah campworks is campworks is kind of grounded in this like outdoor adventure and like outdoor experience type of space um, it's grounded there and it should be there, right? So the future of camp works, the fun piece of it is that it's, it's going to be something that people just want to enjoy, right? Like it's the aesthetics of it, but it's also the enjoyment of it, right? So I think it's always going to be something that's catered around like this, this fun experience, but camp works is, is working toward innovating better systems of building things, manufacturing things, hopefully have a lot of long lasting implications in, in any, in any part of the world, in any part of the built environment, right? Um, but that means developing better and better products and, and developing things that people really want and that they can go enjoy and, and live these different types of lives with is there's so much desire for adventure right now in our world where I think we can build more around, around that experience. The, the next thing coming from CampWorks is the NS2. Uh, the NS1 is our first iteration at it. It's our first production line. Um, 
the, the idea is that there's a lot of things that we are doing right now because the supply chain, you got to set up, you got to set up another manufacturing process. You have to set up another, you know, man, a lot. You have to set up a lot of different <laughs> things just to get the NS1. And so the next thing coming from us is once we've now set up those systems, we don't want to get stuck in doing things the old way just because. So the NS2 is what we're working on. There's some fun developments on sustainable resource, like sustainable material use. Um, and some like more closed off systems, basically trying to close more cycles um, and keep it like energy in, energy out and, and close it up a little bit more and, and loop it up a little bit more. So it actually interacts with the outside of itself, like the outside world, even less than it currently does. Um, it's, it's pretty good as is, right? You can be off grid and like kind of not check back in for like 12 days, but there's some, there's some pieces that we're working to basically embody. Um, then the, the other piece 10 years from now, 10 years from now, I don't know. Hopefully we can pull it off by next year. I don't know if we ever can. Mm -hmm. I'm like, we'll just, we'll see when it happens. Right. But um, basically redefining a few things in the NS2 is the short-term goal. Um, and then also like beyond this, we'll, I'll keep on making, I'll keep on making cool things and hopefully just keep on doing things that I'm passionate about designing and the team comes in, man. And the amount of amazing people that are just going to start to add their own twists and their own fun into it too, is like, it's kind of this group level. It's like, here's this shape, this thing that I designed, but it's like, what kind of fun can go into that, right? What kind of great innovation and beautiful ideas can find their way to be incorporated? Um, well, we, we just keep adding to the team and letting people run free a little bit with that and start adding some amazing things. There's going to be a lot that comes from CampWorks on that, that other people are going to have to talk about, right? And when they come up with these, like these, I, I say beautiful, because I think there should be like some, some element of fun and beauty to it. But when they come up with them and add them in, that those will show up in CampWorks. The other thing, we'll do a larger model. There, there is a necessity for interior space. I, I, I actually believe that. I was always fighting whether or not you necessitated interior space, um, but I think that it's too much of. We've built interior spaces, and human history is like humans like what we've created. And I think you talk about that is like minimalism. The, the NS1 is pretty minimalist, right? Like at the end of the day, you cook outside, you eat outside, you live outside. There's only very, like you can hide inside and you can sleep inside. You can keep your stuff inside, but like there's not a lot of like life inside. It's life mm -hmm. outside. Um, I think that that's, that's really difficult for people. There's, there's people with disabilities. How do you get into bed in our current camper? So a larger one will allow for like actual handicap accessibility that our current one doesn't. You gotta, you gotta design the world for anybody who's got anything going on like that too. Um, there's also currently, if you're six, probably six, five and above, you're probably not gonna want an NS1. So it's, it's not discriminatory in any way, right? Like we're not trying to build it. So like, hey, I have something against people who are six, five, but <laughs> we gotta, you know, you gotta design for that actively. So we have mm -hmm. to come up with a way that it's like, this is a different product for different, different use cases, but um, cooking inside, going to the bathroom inside, let's not fight those. Let's not fight those battles just because, just because, right? Like let's, let's really offer people things they want so that it can start to everything else we're working on. So important. We're going to add a bigger one. So those are the next things to come from, from CampWorks, and um, yeah, hope, hopefully soon. If anybody's listening to this and is, you've gotten a lot of behind the scenes of what CampWorks is doing and um, hopefully, hopefully, uh, hopefully, I'm going to joke here. I don't know. Hopefully no competitors are listening, man. All of a sudden yeah. I'm going to see all this branding show up and they're going to be like, Hey, we know what's happening next from CampWorks." But the, the reality is like, it's just stuff that should happen and we should make for the, for people out there. So we're going to keep on working on that. And CampWorks long-term is, um, 
And I, I just hope long-term it's like this really like a, a kind of a symbol for living, living in the place that you're at, like living in those moments and finding a way to say less is elsewhere, more is right where I am. Um, I hope it's a symbol for like that, that type of mindset just all throughout, right? Like, I, I hope that that's where, where we're at. I hope you see people wearing hats because they believe in that ethos and, and you see them just really enjoying whatever public space or, or natural space or whatever. You know, I, I think that that's, it's kind of the dream of it would be that it, it can create and capture enough of, um, of the adventure and outdoors and van life and capture enough of that understanding of the world and that like, but really to show everybody what that is all really about. Um, mm -hmm the amount of stuff that you guys are juggling day to day is is wild and i and i know that it's, it it actually is really hard to to think 10 years ahead because even if you think 10 years ahead your course will get changed within a year anyway um so i mean it, it's not like it's a goal that you know necessarily is attainable but it's kind of like that that future side of things and i i i think i can speak for pretty much everybody else that has ever come in contact with your brand that um very, very excited about what NS2 can bring um, and and even more NS1s. Um, I think the way that you guys are innovating the space, um, you go look at, our, at an RV, it's, it's incomparable, honestly. Um, like the build quality, the, the thoughtfulness of the design, the, I mean, even down to the, the solar panel choices and the cabinetry. I mean, every single thing is thought out and you just don't see that. So, I mean, I think very, very excited to see what the future holds for you guys. Um, I wanted to ask a few last questions to kind of wrap things up. And one of them is, do you remember your first sustainable purchase that you made that you were like consciously going, Hey, I'm going to buy this because it is a sustainable decision. Sustainability. I, I almost probably would tell you, I sometimes just like hate the, I just hate the word. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I don't do it for that. I, I but I really like, I just really don't, I don't jive with it. So I don't think it's ever crossed my mind like that I bought that for sustainable reasons. Probably like that's probably never been like in one ear out the other like oh that's what I'm thinking. Like that's what I that's what I'm processing it as. Um I I wear I wear Carhartt clothes. When I am working, I wear Carhartt. And the reason is because I have had so many clothes that if I wear them once while working, they're crappy and like they've fallen apart and like so i i buy carhartt and so the moment was before i got my first like real like real adult job i went out and i bought carhartt pants for work and i wore the same carhartt pants one pair i wore for a year and a half while i worked at my 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 big boy job before starting camp works i wore the same pair of pants every single day for a year and a half washing them washing them of course and they held up at the end of it i think i had actually the only spot that had failed was where my phone would sit in my pocket that huh. the phone had actually created created a hole um so that that was a purchase that i was like no i'm gonna invest in this and i think like that mindset though the the idea that i'm investing in this um has has probably permeated through my life for a lot longer of, of I'm not going to buy the cheap crappy soccer cleats as a kid. Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, I will save up all my money that I earn all year working at, around the house, doing whatever little jobs and all my birthday and Christmas money. I'll save that up every year so I can buy good soccer cleats. 
the other question that I had is, um, and this one might be an interesting one since you have traveled so much. Um, what is your favorite place to enjoy nature? San Francisco. Really? Interesting. Where and why? It's just so I know this is going to sound horrible, but that, that place to me is the only city in that I've been to. I'm going to say in the world, that's going to sound really horrible because I haven't been that many cities. Um, but it's like you're in that city and you're constantly looking at like natural beauty. Like it's the fog rolling in or the, you're, you're kind of feeling the ocean spray, like as you walk through town. Um, and there's so many moments that I'm like, yeah, it's a park or it's a this, but it's like, it's just this really beautiful interaction with like, I don't know. I think it's the only city in the world that doesn't feel like completely detached from nature. And it's a city, it's a space for people, but it feels that way. And it's also just so much human life interacts and mingles and melds there. It's like the nicest houses, the the most expensive, the most wealth you've ever seen, some of the best places, best views, best homes. And then it's also like pretty extreme poverty and, and you see it all and you can walk five feet and you can really go from like extreme differences of, of locality and place. And so I look at that as like a, um, such an, just such an interesting look at like what the human world looks like. But then, man, if you drive, so I call, I still call it San Francisco and I know it's not, but the Muir woods right North up in Marin County and out to Bolinas is like, you're everybody, everybody listen to this podcast, man, go take that drive up across the Golden Gate bridge, go for a hike in the in the muir woods go walk around and go get to the ocean and just watch a sunset out there um your life will be absolutely better for it i almost i almost promise it and so it's like you know it's just right there though it's just all right there i think that's i mean yeah san, san francisco it's gonna it's gonna sound so backwards to people it's like what's the most natural place you've ever been no it, it totally makes sense um because i mean i think you've always been really involved in the human experience it is that it is that clashing of all of that and you have nature and you have city and you have culture you i mean all of the things that you enjoy are all in one close-knit area and i think that is what makes san francisco in a lot of ways really special um and it it i definitely think unexpected that it's a city but it makes sense that it's that city for sure there you go i mean well there you go it's it's an interesting thing though because like there's also moments man um like like natural like serenity or moments like that i mean rocky mountain national park right up the street from me is always like a it's always like a an amazingly beautiful place and and there's like some ski there's some ski terrain that i that i've been on that i'm like this is maybe the spot or like standing at the top of like lake louise ski resort um mm -hmm. you know that like it's funny though it was like served by a lift i got i got rode right up to the top like if i had said in the middle of you know in the middle of the back country in the canadian rockies right but it was like i i rode up there on a on a chairlift at a ski resort um so it's like you know you never you know you're just never detached from it so it's like what what gives you peace and clarity um and i think that's what nature does it gives you peace and clarity and and maybe maybe not always the peace you were aiming for but it like gives you it definitely thing is the contrast right like it either gives you that like tranquility or it gives you like a real like fire to go do something that needs to be done and um I, yeah i don't know i don't know man sand dunes the sand dunes here in colorado are pretty special i love my colorado locations or shenandoah oh, mountains what's uh, your favorite what's your yeah what's your favorite i'm gonna have to twist around don't say san francisco it's so funny i i always thought it was um 
10 minutes north of Santa Cruz where I grew up. Um, and I'm not ruining this because there are so many tourists there now, which is unfortunate. Um, but there's this beach, um, officially called coastal dairies, but it is, um, it is like this beach where you, you have to pull off on the side of highway one and like this, it's a dirt parking lot and you have to hike down like a, basically a cliff, um, to get down to the beach. And there's this beautiful archway of rock, natural rock. And you can see all the years that it was forming and you go through this little archway and it just opens up into this even bigger beach with a huge rock at the other end. Um, and if you decide not to go down to the beach, you can stand on the cliff and just look at the view. Um, and that always was my favorite spot um, to, to, you know, if I just needed to get away for, for a few hours, I would just drive up there and, and go do that. The interesting part is the last time I was back in Santa Cruz, um, that place changed for me. One, it was full of people, so that kind of kills it a little bit for me. But the other side of it was I grew up across the street from a redwood forest and I would always go running in there and, and being, being more of an athletic mindset, I would always go running to run, to train. And so I was like, Oh, here's a hill. Here's a downhill. There's a right turn, a left turn. And I went for a run and just went, I'm in, I'm in this forest. I'm in the nature, I'm in nature right now. And it was unreal how calming it was and how, just totally different it, it almost felt like i was in a completely different place and that place has totally become my favorite spot and it's it's just there's something about it where you have you have all these trees that have been there for i mean they're redwoods they've been there for hundreds of years they are huge and they grow in families and they all have an interconnected structure between the forest and you just realize you're part of such a bigger system and that you are the small piece of it and you are one of many, 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 many people who have walked by and lived and been in this area and those those trees, this forest has has been there the whole time. And it's just a very humbling experience for me when I'm there. You know, as much as I can say I love I love the ocean and I love being close to it, because I totally do. There's something about a redwood forest, specifically that one, that just it's incredible. That's amazing. Dude, I've loved that like there's something about a redwood. There is, there is something about redwood forest. There's something about big trees. There's something about just big old trees for sure. There's something, I think it's in Redwood National Park, but it's like the grove, grove of the ancients. It's, it's pretty easy to get like, oh my gosh, these are ancient aliens. There's something crazy. Like they're going to make a history channel television show out of it. Um, but like you walk in there and it's, it's like the space, the actual physical natural space is wise like the space itself is i think there's something weird about that because how is it communicating with you but if you're just listening you're in tune with it like that i think that's what a lot of people like search for when they say natural though i like the the moment that always sticks out and stands out to me actually in 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 san francisco and i'm not going to tell where this was but it's right out of town there's a there's a road you can drive and we we're taking some pictures for campworks and like we were traveling around and we would make a turn and we'd pull off and we'd stop like, oh my gosh. And we, we stopped there. It was a time of day when the lighting was just, it was like maybe nine, 10 in the morning. We had been shooting like shots all up the coast all morning. And we pulled in and, and the lighting was just starting to get like overhead. And it was trickling through the leaves on these huge trees. And it was trickling through like so soft, but there was also moments where it was like 
sunbeams and beautiful. So it was like this really soft lighting mixed with this really kind of harsh lighting. Oh my gosh. It was, I mean, it was, it was an incredible like stage. If you set a stage in this road and we're sitting here like taking pictures of this object that like has a lot of meaning and, and purpose behind it too. And like being, be in this place and being the moment you're in and all these fun things. And then we're doing this photo shoot for this product. It's about that. And um, up ahead, out of nowhere, up ahead on the road, when we stopped one time, this like super loud, beautiful noise comes out. I, I like was jarred by like, Oh my gosh, what is that? Cause it's like peaceful, quiet, serene, taking pictures, just pulling off, no cars really driving by. And it's this dude playing his trumpet in the middle of just nothing. This beautiful, it's this guy, he and his wife are just driving and then they stop and they, they would play the, he would play her the trumpet. And then they'd pack up and they'd go and they'd drive on and they'd, he'd play some more trumpet. And we are sitting here like, oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. Look at all the peaceful. And then out of nowhere. And I mean, he's, I mean, he's 200 yards away from us. He's like up ahead on the road at a different turnout. We just the most beautiful, like not a song. I don't even know how good he was at playing the trumpet. I hope he was like some world-class trumpet player, but he was probably just jamming out. And it was the most beautiful, otherworldly, like crazy experience I've ever heard. Like, But it was, it was like, we're in we're taking pictures with a camera which is technology and we're driving which is cars and gas and we're taking pictures of the product and we're in this moment just being being human with all the tools and resources we have in the trees which are beautiful and this shining light on the road that's again man-made and all these different things it's like all human all human context nothing natural except the trees in the moment right it was like that was a natural authentic real moment and it, it, it happened and it just, it just happened, you know? And that's like, uh, again, I don't, I don't know. We, we, there's like, I dig into why that is, but it was just a beautiful moment. That's so incredible. And definitely sums up San Francisco in a nutshell. Like there's that whole Bay area kind of side of things. You, you have so much, um, creative artistry and, and creativity that's inspired a lot by nature. Well, Tommy, thank you so much for taking the time to be on this podcast. Honestly, it's I'm really excited to release it. It's I th I think for those of you that don't know CampWorks, have not seen CampWorks, like I Tommy, I want you to share like where people can interact with you guys and and actually get involved with CampWorks, um, whether it be a customer, a fan, someone who's just curious about living more connected lifestyle to nature like what's what's kind of the way for people to get more involved no matter what it is that that you guys are interested in here from from listening to this, the product whatever it is we're we're grateful for everybody who's like taking the time to see the product learn about it and you can do that campworksco.com um, or on instagram at campworksco we have like we've had so much like amazing support from everybody and, and we're really grateful for it it's been it's been so great to see it all come together and and people who are receptive to it. But yeah, if you need, if you need anything from an NS1 all the way to just some like advice, or you just want to have a talk or conversation about anything in this world, like, like there's, there's so much time for that. It's the value and it's crazy. So reach out if, if it's anything you need. Um, we're here to help whatever way we can. So um, campworksco.com would be something like that. You can find like an email address on there, I'm sure, and a phone number and you can call, leave us a message. We'll get back to you or, or message us on, on Instagram too. It's like, 
we we read it. We might not respond if somebody says like hard eyes. That might not we might not respond, but like generally, if you reach out there, you're gonna get somebody and somebody's response, and um, you know we'll we'll get back to you and, and get in touch. Nice, awesome. Well, Tommy, thank you so much, um, and keep building, and I can't wait to see uh, what comes next out of CampWorks, whether it's more NS ones, a white NS one, NS twos. Um, super excited about it. Dude, thank you. Thank you for having me. And seriously, keep it up. This is amazing what you're doing, Steve. And I'm, I'm grateful for it and everybody listening to this too. So thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sustainable Goat. Check out CampWorks. And if you're around the Colorado area, drop by their shop and see this camper in person. This idea of enjoying nature and doing it in a sustainable way, I think is such a cool mission. And the team over at CampWorks, they're incredible people and they really are doing amazing things. So definitely check them out. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Sustainable Goat.